Good everyone, and welcome to the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. I'm Jason. My name is Luke. How you going, buddy? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Trying to keep out of trouble. That's it. Why don't we jump straight on into it, eh? Yeah, I'm keen. Guest waiting. Yeah. You want to introduce him or shall I? Yeah, I'll, I'll introduce him. So tonight right, we're actually uh, being graced by the presence of Mr. Peter Birch from Peter Birch's Colourful Critters and Criticam on YouTube. So uh, Peter's got a, a for and those the OG Aussie podcaster. Yeah, yes. I was just saying just before you yeah. jumped on that uh, I'm used to listening to his stuff, not the other way around. Yeah. So, yeah, a little bit funny to be, you know, shoes on the other foot tonight. But yeah, Peter's almost racked up 29,000 subscribers over on YouTube and is one of Australia's larger reptile breeders with a strong focus on Antaresia. So, yeah, it's thanks for jumping on board, Pete. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. You're starting no, to make me feel like an old man. <laughs> <laughs> You've still got more hair than me, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's the colour sometimes, the colour. <laughs> yeah, I almost need to blank out Jason's screen sometimes because he gets the bit of moonshine coming off the top of his head every now and then. So. Oh, that, that's, that's a bit harsh. That's a bit harsh. Uh, oh, he good. can take it. He yeah, can take it. got thick skin. <laughs> So, Peter, like most people out there in Australian herpticulture know you and a bit about your background, but for those who don't, do you want to just kind of give everyone a bit of a quick rundown of what you got you started in keeping reptiles and how it progressed for you? Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, obviously, like most people, there's a, there's a gateway moment in their life, and, and mine was probably when I was like five or four. I remember being at preschool and playing in a sandpit, and as they pulled back the tarp and threw me in the sandpit, there was a blue tongue. So I remember grabbing the blue tongue and the teacher's screaming, ah, it's a snake, it's going to kill you and all this sort of stuff. And they grabbed the lizard and <laughs> dragged me away and all the rest of it. So that, that was sort of a, a gateway moment where you sort of become a little bit more exposed to these things. And I was living in sort of western New South Wales and, um, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a coastal freak like I am now. And, and, and seeing snakes was a, was a given, you know. It was, it was an everyday event and obviously like most people in my age group, we're always taught good snakes are dead snakes. We're always got to fear snakes, and you know we're always taught to hate these animals. But the, it, it's it's not the case, you know. Like we can appreciate these animals and fall in love with them, obviously, just like you guys. And I guess as as you get older, you know, you get told you can't have certain things. And I mean, I used to go and spend a fair bit of time on my grandfather's farm. He lived out at Mudgee, just outside of Mudgee there, and we used to go and chase and catch all sorts of cool stuff and. The good part about that experience was I was allowed to catch animals, bring them home when we were living in Sydney, keep them, and, you know, I'd build new enclosures. I'd keep them alive. I'd feed them and look after them and maintain them. And the next set of school holidays, I'd take the animal back, release it, and then I'd go on the hunt again for something different. So that that allowed me to fulfill a couple of criteria, you know, being able to chase animals and find them in their natural habitats, try and recreate those habitats, catch animals, learn to work with the animals, and then obviously I had to be responsible enough to bring the animals back and release them. Yeah. And then I guess that just grew and grew and grew, and then obviously you get to the age where you no longer have to worry about your parents. You start bringing home all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and these were the days prior to licensing, and then you learn about there's a whole new world out there where you can have a, a sort of a license system. It was used to be a general license prior to all the reptile keeping and amphibian licenses being issued in 97. And I was fortunate enough to have one of those back in the early days and very fortunate enough to bump shoulders and heads with the likes of people like Bob Whitty, 
John Montgomery, Peter Krause, John Weigel, you know, all the Jerry Swan, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole plethora of these guys that I was fortunate to be a, a younger guy bumping shoulders with some of these basically pioneers of the industry and, and learning more and more about proper responsibility and keeping of reptiles. And that's, yeah, early 90s. And, you know, from there I went on and started a business exhibiting animals and educating people. I did that up until about 2013, from 90, uh, mid-90s to 2013. In my prime of that business, we had six people working for us, educating. Um, we had a, a great variety of animals. We had insects as well as reptiles. Um, we were one of the first people to actually have exotic reptiles as well as a mobile exhibitor. So I was fortunate enough to have boa constrictors and American alligators. We also had saltwater crocs, freshwater crocs, all the cool stuff, you know, everyone wanted to see. And we sort of specialised in educating the younger people, trying to get those messages out there um, and trying to reprogram people's thoughts because early childhood understanding is that you know, around the age five, six years of age, whatever we've learned around that age group is sort of sticks with us for the rest of our life. So those gateway moments that when I had when I was younger, seeing reptiles, chasing, catching, learning and having the pleasure of catching them and releasing them, you know, I wanted to sort of share that on a on a on a wider scale and and that's what we were achieving. Around that 2013, I was working for a business in Sydney living on the central coast, traveling to Sydney, two hours either way every day, sort of gobbled up my time as well as I was pushed into a higher role. Um, so I was managing, I was doing 60 to 70 hours a week. So that sort of took a toll and I just couldn't do the education component of it. So I sort of dropped that. But then I came back with a vengeance and we started doing, like you said, we, we started looking at podcasting, trying to reach a broader audience um, in a in a more manageable time frame. So instead of driving around doing all these birthday parties and education through Sydney, I could do a podcast and it could go off into the into the intranets basically and disappear into wherever all the cracks and and, and, and reach people all over the world. And then obviously um, through meeting people like Brian Barcheck in 2009 and forming a relationship that also spawned the, the creation of Criticam in 2012 um, and in 2012, it was so primitive. It was just basically me and my young fellow, my son, spending a bit of time together, filming, working together and having a bit better of a father and son relationship, but also being based around animals. And, you know, all those sort of little inklings, little building blocks built up to where I am today and where I continue to move forward. So I guess, you know, and, and I was fortunate enough along those little trial runs I did work for universities. I've worked for University of Western Sydney, University of New South Wales, Sydney Uni. Um, I've worked in those fields uh, as technical assistants, basically the animal catcher um, and handler and all the rest of it, and dealing with vets, scientists, you know, learning so much more and opening myself up to learn so much more, basically not just, you know, having a lizard, put it in a cage, throw crickets at it and, you know, the lizard's happy. You're trying to learn a bit more building blocks to make sure that we're doing things more ethical, basically, in the long term. And and that, that was the basis of trying to do the educational. I mean, the YouTube stuff is is magnificent because it just goes off. And it's, it's amazing 
how many people that reaches and where it goes to. And and the, the feedback you get from that, you know, is, is pretty incredible. But the same thing is if you're strictly educational down the line, then, you know, sometimes it falls on deaf ears. So sometimes it's got to be entertainment, um, sometimes positive entertainment, sometimes negative entertainment. And, um, yeah, you just got to deal with those repercussions, I guess. But you, you're trying to reach a broader audience and just get those messages out there as, as much as possible. And you just want people to appreciate, love, wildlife regardless of what what your interest is really i could waffle on for days yeah i guess that's the one handy thing about youtube as well this day and age is you've got the visual you've got everything the whole aspect of it so you can kind of show bits and pieces as well instead of i mean podcasts are great if you want to hear about it but that visual aspect for new keepers or people that have shows a little bit of interest that visual aspect goes a long way i reckon most definitely and i mean everyone learns differently and I, I, on myself, you know, when I'm in yeah. cleaning, cleaning snake cages and scrubbing away, I, I always have podcasts playing in the background because you could listen to music all day, yeah. but the podcast, you know, you're going to learn something. And here exactly. I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I turned 50 this year and I'm still learning. I'm still learning, you know. It's opening myself oh, up to learn definitely. more and gather more information. And the more information I can gather and put into my collection is going to work, you know, in my benefit but also the animal's benefit. And hopefully if something that yeah. works positive, then we can share that message with everyone else. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, there's many ways to educate and, you know, you've kind of done your fair share of a, a lot of different methods and it seems like you've you've pretty much landed on one that's a little bit... I'd, YouTube's kind of one of those funny things because it's kind of good because it's a little bit convenient. You can kind of just pick up a camera and film a little bit here and there when you want to, when something's happening, rather than kind of being locked into a nine-to-five and... And having to be doing all that sort of side, you can still kind of put yourself out there a little bit and get a little bit of education happening with some animals that you've got without having to, yeah, kind of force it upon people in a sense. And the people yeah. that want to know it are going to come to it. Yeah, and and the thing too is, you know, you can you can cater it so you can like you like you know yourself, you can put something together where if someone's into geckos and they're into a specific species, you can sort of concentrate on that and then put it out there, and hopefully, you know, that content is useful not only for the keeper, but also the kept. And that, that's the whole idea of it, is trying yeah, to make exactly. sure that, I mean, we are custodians of captive animals, but the thing is these animals should be kept in the best quality conditions as possible. I mean, sometimes, you know, tub systems work for some animals and sometimes it doesn't work for others. You know, so we sort of got to constantly up, exactly. constantly got to reevaluate why we're doing the things we're doing. And I guess... A good friend of mine, Steve Crawford, down in South Australia, he put forward a question, which is, why are we keeping? You know, like, why do you keep animals? So sometimes we've really got to think of why we're doing this. You know, it's not just because we've got the cool stuff or we want something fancy or, you know, I want to be the guy walking down the street with a big giant snake or whatever. But sometimes you've got to really reevaluate why we're keeping these animals. You know, what's in it for us and what's in it for them? Mm. Like yeah, I said, I could waffle. True. I could waffle. For I, I don't think. <laughs> no, that's no, great. It's good. Perfect. It gets us thinking um, too. That's right. Yeah, yeah I was just thinking about that. I was like, yeah, that's actually a really good question. That's a question you don't yeah. quite hear. Like, oh, that's probably the first time I've actually heard that question. So, mm. and and I think that's it's one important that, that we ask ourselves myself personally. Yeah, I think it's sometimes yeah, exactly. we really got to ask ourselves Definitely. why. You know. Yeah. 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 I've got the cogs ticking in my head already. I'm going, why am I keeping these animals? Yeah, and, you're like, you know, you're now scanning around your collection going, oh, 
what is this benefit to me or the animal? Why, why, why? But I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a good collection. I mean, you see some people have uh, a collection and they specifically work with a certain, like Morelia, or they work with just Taliqua, or they work with just, you know, Neferis or, or whatever. You know, they just pick their little little pocket and they work with that and they become, you know, very good at doing and looking after those animals, which is awesome. And mm. And I, I think these days, as I look back on the hobby and see the way it's going, more and more people are sort of pocketing themselves, you know, picking a little niche, and that's that's their thing. Um, yeah. I, I think the reality is a, a, a real reptile keeper can breed just about any reptile if they put their mind to it. And the real key is trying to understand what where the animals naturally come from, conditions. You know, you got to look at the diets as well as heating, lighting, UV, you know, the whole lot. There's so much to think about. It's not just, you know, buying a lizard from the pet store, throwing it in the pet store supplied cage and little Johnny's happy. I mean, these some of these species of animals can live such long periods of time and is it is it a nice way that we keep some of these animals for a long period of time? I guess as I get older, I become a little bit more philosophical too. <laughs> And I, I question the, what the I whole do. Hobby's changing too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The, well, me and Luke have spoken about that numerous times. Like you see people now, like the way they keep is just changed compared to say five, five, six years ago. However, everyone used to keep, which is good to see, I guess. Which probably brings us back to that question that you you said before. So. Yeah, it's it's good but to see it's, that it's people evolve this... for the better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and like something that I'm struggling with personally at the moment is you know. I enjoy so many different species and different animals that I can't kind of bear to part with a lot of the stuff that I've got. Not that I not I want to, but then you take a look at Jason, for example, who's kind of just took a short break and he's getting in, but he's being very reserved about what he wants to keep and how he wants to keep it. And, you know, he's going to be very diligent about, you know, bigger enclosures, better enclosures and all that sort of stuff for a limited amount of species. And, yeah, it's just a, a, a plethora of different ways how to tackle this beast, I think, and... Definitely. Yeah, my my brain's still ticking from that question though. <laughs> That's got me rattled a little bit. It, going, why it, it, it'll it, it'll take you a while to work out, you know, why. And and that's the thing is, I, I think you, you always see stuff popping up, and you go, oh, I've always wanted that, or I've never had the opportunity yeah. to work with those, and you know, then you go, should I? What am I going to achieve? You know, and then you, you start asking yourself these questions, and you go, okay, I just feel like a kid in a candy store. You know, I want everything. And that's the way most people mm. come into the hobby. You know, they get the uh, – it's, exactly. like, it's like the taste. They get one thing and then they, you know, they go, oh, this is my first snake and I'm so happy. And you're like, no, oh, it doesn't stop at one. And they come back and they go, oh, I've got five snakes now and I want to get more. And you're like, oh, yeah. you'll get to a point where you sort of go, <laughs> I've got too many. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah. I went through that and then got rid of everything. And <laughs> yeah, some people – myself that I got rid of half the stuff I got rid of, but yeah. Yeah, that happens. I mean, you do it at the time for the yeah. right reasons and you've just got to go, you know what, I did it for the right reasons and just move on. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think about all the stuff that I have sold along the years or given away along the years and stuff like that. I'm going, man, why did I do that? You know, I'd kill to have that back now, but, you know, that is yeah. what it is and you can't change the past. No. I mean yeah. – I've been fortunate enough. I've had friends along the way that I've been able to, you know, when I've wanted to change my focus, hand things off, 
and then somewhere down the track I go, geez, I really wished I, you know, how are those animals going? And they're like, well, I actually bred some here, some babies back, you know, and it's like, oh, cool. You know, that's yeah. so that's a bit of the real old school stuff was just swap and trade rather than monetary value rather than mm. as you see more and more these days, people talk about investments. And, I mean, that sort of makes my <laughs> that makes my skin crawl a bit, you know. What's the best investment? Yep. The best investment is take your money, open the window and throw it out and then go and see how much money you can find because that's what it's like with reptiles. Half of it's going to blow away in the wind. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that could be any more true. If you're lucky, you're going to find at least half your money. You know, if you make the wrong choice, yeah, that's right. you're not even going to get that. So. Yeah. Yeah, people see this and they go, oh, you're breeding all this stuff and it's like, yeah, but you got electricity, you got food, you've food. got all this other stuff to do, you got to up, you know, keep enclosures yeah, going. As well. and people don't, don't factor what's your in time their time worth? as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, we all we all get out of bed and usually go to work for someone else and there's a value on your time. That's right. So why yep. sitting at home working on your own animals is that different? You know, you've got to have a value. Yeah, yeah. So and that's the yeah. hard part, I guess. Whereas passion over profit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, very true. I, I have to say though, like I, you know, I've always enjoyed having my animals, and I've always enjoyed coming down and seeing them, and you know, getting the flashlight out at night and seeing what geckos are up or doing what, and you know, you're you're always going to get that enjoyment. But after moving up to this new place and having them, you know, only a stone throw from the couch. It has just opened my world. I'm seeing so much more behaviour and and hanging out in these rooms so much more, probably to my wife's distaste. But you know, it's um, it's one of those things that well, I can definitely see the benefit that I get from it. It makes me happy. It gives me a reason to kind of do some things in my life and and chase some things. And um, yeah, I That's, don't know what I'd do without them. I think I'd be lost. To, to me, as a reptile keeper and a reptile lover, it's that passion. Whereas you can't imagine life without them, whether it be yeah, yeah. One, one year, five years, 10 years or 20 or whatever it is, you know. I mean, everyone's life changes and we sort of move in and out of fads. But if you're a true reptile person, you'll come full circle. Yeah. Just yeah, I found when I got rid of everything, I was still always on yeah. social media just looking at pictures of it. I obviously got all the books. I was reading books still. Like I basically never like the only thing that left was the animals, but not yeah. the passion for the animals. That was always still there. Yep. All the enclosures, so, you still got like thirty odd yeah. exoterrans. Yeah, you know, still so. got a bunch of them too. So that's a good financial decision <laughs> not to get rid of them. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, fair stack of them are here now. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So, um. Just on to the next kind of topic, essentially, what does your reptile collection kind of look like these days? Because you're kind of like me where you've got a little bit of everything, but you do have some strong focuses as well amongst your collection. Yeah. So obviously my 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 key passion and love and desire is the dirt snakes, the anteresia. You know, that's just <laughs> – that's been my thing since, oh, when I got my first couple of spotted pythons and back in 93, 94 – I got my first couple of spotted. I bred them, and it was that was it. I was hooked. You know, I had, I was fortunate enough to have a variety of different stuff at that point, and um, for some reason, this that just hooked me. I was I was done and dusted. Doesn't matter what else I bred or had. That that was it. You know, there was a there was a period in my life where I was heavily into venomous snakes and had a ton of venomous snakes, 
But then the spotted pythons came along and it's like, no, nah, these are the guys. This is it, you know. That was my thing. <laughs> and and I've still got those original foundation animals today, you know, and that just it, – they're probably my pride and joy of the whole collection, regardless of all the yeah. other pretty colours and patterns and stuff. And, I mean, all that stuff didn't happen until, you know, the first albino – Max popped up around 2010, I think it was, or 2008, I think the first one popped up, but you could get Hets in 2010. But, I mean, all the yeah. other, you know, Platinums and all that other stuff, T-plus children's, they were all sort of very hard to come by, very expensive. And we're talking around 2000 is sort of when the boom came in for all that coloured stuff. So I already had a good foundation of what I could do um, with the spotted pythons, I had quite a few of them. I was able to, you know, consistently breed them. And, I mean, in the mid-90s still, it was very difficult to get information about breeding Australian pythons. Um, you know, like my first Woma pythons were $3,500 each. And, yeah. you know, today people try and haggle you, you know, you sell them for 350 bucks, and people try and haggle you. And it, to me, that's just an insult. You know, I just, yeah, that's right. I, I, I don't like haggling. I mean, yeah, I, I don't even go there. But, yeah, my main focus is Antaresia, obviously, um, but I do keep, you know, carpets. I don't have any fancy carpets. The most fancy carpets I own is albinos. Um, you know, I've got olives, blackheads, womers, scrubbies, because I'm a bit of a sicko, I've got scrubbies. <laughs> they, you know, they're they're quite an intelligent animal. They very they really interest me on on a different level. So for some species, you know, and I hate to offend anyone, but black-headed pythons aren't the smartest tool in the shed. Um, whereas scrub pythons are probably the most intelligent of all the Australian pythons. So I get a little bit out of out of all these animals just by working with them. So you know, I've, I've got a lot of yeah, I've got a lot of bits and pieces. I've got skinks. I've got geckos. I've got monitors i guess i don't keep any any dragons anymore no agamids anymore so it's something different yeah a lot of people have dragons or you know at least a dragon or something in yeah their, their yeah I, I used to be very heavy into the agamids um sort of around the time i was into the uh, venomous snakes so i had a lot of things like tenophorus pictus um you know i had netteds and Mallee dragons and all these things that had biannual life cycles, you know, and mm. so it was it was very difficult. But you know, once you sort of crack the code, you could maintain your little population and just keep breeding them. And as you breed them, you know, then the older ones die off, and you replace them with the younger ones and all the rest of it. So for me, you know, all all that sort of stuff, all the gamut stuff was pretty cool. Frill necks, I bred frillies quite a few times. Um, Hypsilurus, which are no longer Hypsilurus, are they? They're life. Lophagnus or something. Lophosaurus, I think. Oh, yeah, there we are. Lophosaurus. Lophosaurus yeah. So, you know, I, I, I've managed to work with all this cool stuff. And, um, you know, it was nice. It was cool. And for me, it was about getting babies, raising babies, producing more babies, and then raising those babies and going, you know what, I'm, I'm able to do this and maintain them in a, in a good way. And then, you know, it's like, well, it's really not my focus. I, I liked working with them, but, you know, I just sort of moved those on and, and the monitors sort of started moving in, so, <laughs> as they do. Yeah, I was going to say, they don't usually leave once they start moving in. No, no, that's the thing. You get hooked with those things and it's a different world. It's it's like a real Jurassic Park. 
Oh, yeah. And they still confuse the shit out of you as well. Because oh, you're yeah. working with the Brevia Quarter, aren't you? The the small yeah. monitors. Yeah, I got yep. Brevia Quarter, Primordius. Um, I got some Gill and I. I got some Storoi, Ocreatus. Um, yeah, that's quite a few little little monitors. They're pretty cool. Just a quick question: Does your inbox get absolutely abused for Gill and I at the moment? <laughs> I tell you what, I, I've. I've I've actually been. I've actually had someone send me messages abusing me because I breed animals and I don't sell them. Telling me yeah. it's my, it's 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 your duty as a person that's breeding these animals to sell them to the general public. <laughs> wow, um, I haven't had it that bad, but I have had a few conversations <laughs> along that line. Someone, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I get spam from America, Germany, Europe, obviously. These, these things don't exist over there. So you can imagine yeah. numbers and you just go, it's, it's even in Australia, you know, like can I be put on the waiting list? If I had a, a roll of toilet paper for a waiting list, it wouldn't be long enough. You could go around the world probably 10 times. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's huge, you know. And the thing is I, I, I would rather breed animals and swap them to friends or give them to friends that would also get the same pleasure and, you know, try and build up a sustainable population in captivity yeah. rather than, you know, sell them off and make some money. Who knows I where mean, they end up? Well, that's it. And can you trust the hands they go into? I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I'm very much the same along that line at the moment. You know, there's a few trades that will hopefully be happening this year between me and a few mates with some certain species and stuff as well. And yeah. I, I like that peace of mind of going – all right, I know this guy's a really competent keeper, and yep. if it drops off, it's not actually something he's done. It's no. you know just been shit, shit luck sort of thing. So, yep. you know, but it's nice to go. Okay, cool. I know that's there. If all my stuff goes to crap or whatever, then he'll probably start up his own population. It's, going, it's a backup you know, backup so. colony, just in case someone crashes. Exactly. I do. I do the exact same thing at work. I get a coral. I chop it up into ten pieces. I put it in ten different tanks, and then at least I've got bits all over the shop. So if I need that piece back because it's crashed in another tank or whatever, yep. yeah, it's the exact same. Yep. Exact same. It's a it's a best yeah, policy, no, my, I think. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's one species that I couldn't even tell you how many people are apparently on this waiting list that I've got at the moment. It just keeps getting longer and longer, and <laughs> yeah, I keep I telling think, them I'm like, you know, it's yeah, hard think, to get them off me. I think Gell and I is, is – is, they've always been a hot little monitor, you know. Like, I mean, Akinthura – I mean, Gill and I and Akinthurus used to be the two main monitor, little monitors that we used to sort of get your hands on. But hands down, you know, the the, the Gillens have just got such a character to them. I've got – Yeah, um, they do. I've got this, this – I've got one little Gillens here. Well, he's not little. He's, he's like a thumper. He's, he's a monster. Um, I call him, yeah, I call him fingers, man. And I tell you what, he just paces the front of the cage back and forth, back and forth. He's, he's, he's like, he's like off, off his head, you know, he's just constantly pacing. He sees me and he just paces, paces, paces. You open the cage and he just grabs you straight on the hand. And then <laughs> he just holds, holds on for about three minutes and then he go, let's go. And he's like, okay, I'm done. And then he'll just sort of run up and sit on your shoulder. Or sometimes he'll bite me on the back of the neck. But I mean, he's he's just he's just off the charts, you know. You put him back in, and he's like, oh, "Okay, I'm," and he just runs around, and eats his food. And next time you walk in the room, he'll be pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Open the cage, he'll do the same thing, straight on your hand, boom. And he sits there. <laughs> it's it's like he's got this fascination. He just he just loves the fingers. 
I think yeah, I think he, he's starting a few of your videos, hasn't he? Yeah. 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 He's I think a crazy I'm pretty sure fella. I've seen those ones. He's a crazy little He's a fella. big Gillenai too. Yeah, he's a thumper for a Gillenai. And I mean, he, he actually crawled up in the back of my neck one day and I sort of hunched back. And then he obviously took the advantage of a big hunch of skin on the back of my neck and bit it. And, of course, I couldn't couldn't straighten out. I couldn't do anything. I was sort of hunched over and I'm sort of leaning down on the floor trying to reach back and grab him without hurting him. And it was funny. The wife walks in and goes, what's going on? Fingers has got me. Fingers has got me. He's trying to kill me. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a my, funny little bugger. I copped my first good bite from a Gillenai the other day. I was actually pretty lucky to quickly get the camera onto it. But... That was the first one that's actually held on and given it a bit of a tear. And yeah. like for a little tiny monitor, they've got a little bit of jaw pressure behind them. Yeah, it's good to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I haven't experienced that too much. So, um, I mean, you've given us a bit of a rundown of your, your collection as such, but we wanted to kind of touch on, because Jason and I are obviously very um, into our naturalistic enclosures and that sort of stuff. I do have a few snake racks and stuff here as well, but we wanted to kind of get a bit of an overview of what sort of enclosures that you've got for your animals because obviously you've got a diverse amount of animals and, and you know, a diverse amount of situations to keep them in as well. So can you give us a bit of a rundown of certain things that you might prefer versus, you know, enclosures that you do like, whether you like homemade stuff? Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, obviously rack systems I find work really well for anteresia. They're a small – I mean, it, I guess that whole question comes around to knowing the animals, knowing where they come from, what they do, how they live in their natural environments, and not only, you know, just seeing one cross the road and go, okay, well, diamond pythons cross the road, so I've got to build a road in my enclosure. But, you know, spending a bit more time in the bush, actually walking around, tracking and seeing multiple – animals doing different things and, and getting a bit of a, an idea and a bit of a feel. So through that, you know, I've, I've spent countless hours out in the field looking for anteresia, going into different environments, looking at the environments as well as looking for animals, but studying the environments, you know, and seeing these things. And, you know, they'll live anywhere from, you know, wet sclerophyll forest right through to rainforests, depending on what it is. Or if you're looking for Stimson's pythons, you know, they could be in dry sclerophyll forest right out to deserts as well as children eye. You know, they just all overlap and cross over. And don't get me started about the new revision of the paper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I refuse to believe that Stimson eye doesn't exist, but that's just me being an old school guy. Um, but, you know, looking at these animals, typically they, they're, they're a species that, spends a lot of time hiding in cramped areas. So therefore I find tub systems work for them. Um, they're a tactile animal, so they like to touch things. And I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else is using butcher's paper or newspaper as a, as a barren substrate, but there's certain times of the year I'll use that. So pre-breeding, egg laying, and then this time of the year, they're all getting substrates. So it's all particle substrates again. That stimulates their bodies so when they move they can feel particles um like i said they're a tactile animal so they like to touch stuff they have smallish hide boxes because they like to get into areas and touch everything and feel more comfortable if you put them in and i mean anyone can do this you can put them in a huge cage and put something in the corner like a water bowl and have a branch yeah they'll spend a bit of time up and down the branch but then they'll go and hide in the back corner behind the water bowl because they can touch everything and feel comfortable 
and deep yep. substrate too works well because they can burrow through it. So, I mean, a lot of people don't take that in consideration that some of these species like to burrow. Yeah. Even the big carpets burrow under under deep leaf litter and substrate. It's an ambush technique. Um, so, you know, we've really got to think twice about how we keep these animals. I use tub systems and have used home-built um, cages for uh, carpet pythons. And I think the, the, the bigger cages work better for carpets. That's a personal preference. Yep. So I think tub systems, I think we're doing an injustice to the animal because carpets aren't as tactile. I mean, they like to hang and move. So, you know, we need to give them the opportunity to move up and down as well as side to side. And, and I mean, I've got some big olive pythons in their cages are as, probably as long as the snakes are because I believe like blackheads and olives, look at these huge lungs. You keep them in small cramped conditions, their lungs can never fully expand and therefore you're going to end up with, you know, it's not an RI but it basically end up with like fluids building up inside the, the, the lungs and they can never fully expand or breathe properly and you could shorten their life period and, you know, you could, if you're not watching the diet, you could cause high levels of fat and then that will shorten their life period. So you've got to be really cautious about that sort of stuff. So, you know, yeah, you just really got to evaluate. I'm trying to get more and more stuff outside. I mean, I live in a rainforest. We get two and a half meters of rain every year. Um, we've got the coldest, wettest climate on the central coast which could be a good thing, but it's also a bad thing depending on what you need to keep outside. So you've really got to be very cautious about humidity more than the temperature because moisture causes lots of problems, um, skin, fungal yep. diseases, respiratory problems, eye problems, you know, skin problems, the whole works. So some, some, somewhere along the line you've got to have a, a nice healthy medium where you can keep stuff outside um, I've been keeping stuff outside for a long period of time, but then, you know, winter comes, it sort of comes inside. You know, those days where we have high rainfall in summer, the humidity just goes through the roof. So you've got to be mindful of that. You've got to move the stuff back inside. So we're in the process of building some, and we've got some, basically some, you know, prototyping stuff going on, trying to overcome the, the humidity on outdoor enclosures so I can get more and more stuff outside, get more carpets out in aviaries you know and they can get real sunlight sunlight is the key to everything um you know skinks right through to every everything i mean geckos some geckos definitely um other geckos probably not but i mean at the end of the day let the animal make the decision just give them the exactly. uv and let let them take the opportunity to either use it or not yeah so, i agree with that so to answer your question yeah i, I use a variety of everything and some things work better than others. Some things just fit better than others. Um, but really, yeah, th like I'm changing a lot of the stuff I'm doing here. I'm, I'm building bigger enclosures for the carpets, so they'll all get moved into bigger enclosures, basically like a meter by a meter cube, compared to yeah. you know the little yeah. V70 trays or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Yeah, I just think. Oh. Just think, the animals deserve better. They live so so long. <laughs> it's an interesting point that you brought up there about you know the bigger species such as olives and blackheads and not being able to stretch out and you know the way that their lungs won't actually get to stretch out like that. I've never actually considered that about a snake. 
Mm. Like I've never kind of thought like if you're coiled up for so long. I mean, obviously I'd, I'd look at it and go, you look cramped, you look uncomfortable, you deserve more. Yeah. But I never actually specifically thought about the lungs not being able to actually inflate properly because they can't stretch out like that. So that was so, so on yeah, the flip side. Yeah, on the flip side too. So back in the earlier days when licensing came in, there was a whole – I don't know if you guys remember the whole soggy – python syndrome it sounds a little bit sexy yeah. but, but it's not it's and then i mean um glenn shea from sydney uni really well-known herpetologist um did a lot of blood work and the conclusion was you know they took animals from the wild drew blood captive animals that were kept outside drew blood captive animals that were kept inside whole time never seen sunlight animals that were in and out and all over the place so there was a whole plethora of data that was collected in blood and there was no real conclusion why these animals had this soggy snakes soggy python syndrome but where we we were looking at you know the effects of uv light on pythons but i think the real the real the real problem was we're not looking at the way we were keeping the snakes if snakes are allowed to stretch move and climb that's where they're going to get the strength from and yeah. I mean, anyone that keeps pythons in tubs, you know, like big carpet pythons, you know, you could keep a hundred py- carpet pythons in a tub and have no problem. Or you might open a tub and pull one out that feels a little bit weird in your hands and soft and squishy. Is that yep. because, you know, these animals are designed differently to live in different environments, but do you think if they're kept outdoor in, well, outdoor or indoors, and I've kept indoor enclosures like aviaries where I've had diamond pythons and they've just climbed up and down and moved all over the place and done whatever they want. And I just think the ability that these strong animals, you know, with these strong bodies and muscular system need to climb. And that climbing is building the strength in the animal, whether or not it has access to UV light, which, which obviously the scientific data says UV light or sunlight made no difference in the calcium levels in the blood. But so now we need to look at if it's not sunlight, it's got to be the way we're keeping them. That's what I would think. Mm. Yeah. And that's just me going off Again, on a different tangent. Back to how you were talking. No, that's all right. It gets yeah. us thinking. That's always a good thing to have these conversations. But that goes exactly back to how you're talking about, you know, you're looking at their habitat and where they're coming from. And they're less like Antaresia, which might be a little bit more sedentary and kind of hiding in those small spots where they're a bit more of like a foraging type predator where they're actually yes. going out, they're hunting, they're climbing trees, they're, they're hanging moving. down off trees. Yep. It's the movement. You're utilizing yeah, all the muscles. Whereas, you know, if you're cramped up, you're not utilizing all your muscles. Same as humans too. If you don't exactly. use, you know, if you're sitting in a chair your whole life and you're not getting up and using your arms and your legs, your legs are going to become weak. So You turn into jello. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I just I just think, you know, you gotta sometimes give the animals the opportunity to, to show you what they want or what they need and obviously, you know, you know, whether it be like I know you guys are heavily into your naturalistic enclosures and that's magnificent. Does that suit everyone? Probably not. Should we do exactly. more of it yep. as a reptile keeper, a reptile lover? Definitely. You know, most of my cages when I first started were all decked out. I mean used to go out and you used to catch lizards and then you look at the environment and go look at this environment i might actually grab one of these branches and a couple of these rocks and i might scrape up some dirt and take that home and set up a cage so it's got familiar sort of stuff and 
Mm. You know, even if you wanted to grow plants, you take plants from those areas and try and grow those particular plants. Um, things like shingleback lizards, like if you go out to Broken Hill, out around that, those areas, and you watch these animals and just follow them and just watch what they're eating, and their faces are always caked in salt because they're eating the little salt bushes everywhere because certain times of the year, that's all they can find. Yeah. Heavy, high amounts of salt, but they're sneezing it out, and it's all around, caked around their faces, you know, and, and just watching them and learning. And to me, that's that's the gold, you know, watching these animals naturalistically yeah. doing what they do. And then, you know, if you have the ability and you don't have too many animals, then, yeah, bring get some of that naturalistic little – I mean, you get yourself a little window into their life in your in your lounge room or whatever, and that's exactly. the perfect perfect escape. Yeah, I think that's definitely what I get a kick out of. I think you know, even before reptiles came around, I was always pretty artistic in one way or another, where I just had to always be doing something with my hands. So this has just given me kind of like a double whammy of an outlet. I'm getting a reptile kick as well as being able to be creative and making enclosures and. Yeah, it's it's awesome to be able to go out to areas where you know these animals are and even if you don't see the animal, at least you see some environment, you get a bit that's of inspiration, right. you can kind of see the areas. And it's, yeah, that's and, and definitely I, been I instilled think, in me the last few years. I mean, we talk about herpetoculture. It's the captive keeping of animals, basically. I mean, I, I would really encourage anyone that keeps anything, go out and spend a bit of time in the bush. You know, you don't have to be out trying to, catch something or herp all the time although you know we're all wired a little bit differently aren't we so um you know you go out and you just observe and i mean and then the hard part too i guess in the in my later years is you know we're always quick to race out and grab something and get that wanker shot you know the perfect picture and all the rest of it um maybe maybe let's just follow the animal for 10 15 minutes and watch what it does and see if it notices that you're watching and and how it changes it's 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 movements or whatever and we can learn so much just by watching animals and then you know yeah. you can catch it and take your wanker shot and let it go or whatever you know so yeah it's it's it's, it's one of those things you know i mean we're all guilty of doing that <laughs> yeah but it's, it's sometimes just watching and learning is the hardest part i, I still remember maybe about two or three years ago now one of my favorite herping encounters that i ever actually came across and it was actually a large group of us out on this particular night and we managed to stumble down this little creek bed kind of close to home where i was and uh anyway we um we stumbled across a a a bit of a fight between an eastern water dragon and a brown tree snake yeah obviously you can imagine who came out on top of this one but yeah it was it was cool to be able to kind of sit down see the see the struggle it was like you know one of those david attenborough shows right in front of your face we just needed some nice music behind it (laughs) and uh unfortunately the the water dragon kind of succumbed to being envenomated and we watched the brown tree snake eat the water dragon and slither off and go into a crack in a wall and we were like wow that was just insane you know we spent like half an hour just watching this whole thing play out and you know took photos along the way didn't touch anything didn't have to do anything but just being able to see it happen that's gold. That's I mean, that 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 is just gold watching and just like you say that information. And I mean, in the back in the day, people would write a little 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 article about what they've seen, what time it was, and all the rest of it, and all that data. And that's how people used to learn long before we had the magic of uh, 
you know, a little computer in our pocket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it was insane. It was, you know, it's it's kind of, I don't know, like I suppose along my kind of herping trajectory, it's kind of rare that you see something like that. But, yeah. you know, like even the other night when we were out, you know, we, we found a, a bandy bandy and we're like, oh, this is cool. We kind of watched him for 10, 15 minutes. You know, bandy bandies are pretty common. Yep. Um, well, I was with a couple of people that that was their first bandy bandy. So they were super excited, which got me excited. And then after the bandy bandy kind of took off, the little blind snake just scurried out from underneath a leaf right where the bandy <laughs> bandy was. <laughs> He's kind of gone, oh, lucky me. I'm not getting yeah. eaten tonight. You know, like, oh, geez, okay. That's why the bandy bandy was there. So Yeah, he's sniffing around looking for dinner. Yeah, that's it. So just kind of to, to bring us kind of back on, on our question list here, we just kind of wanted to touch on how you go about keeping such a large collection and keeping it efficient to kind of keep everything clean, everything fed, everything looked after because, you know, Jason's obviously got low numbers now, but he's come from reasonably high numbers of geckos and things. Um, I'm nowhere near you. I've got 80-odd critters here, but obviously you're – you know, top tier in, in that sort of regard. So we want to kind of hear some tips and tricks on how you look after it all. Yeah, efficiency. So obviously snakes are a little bit low maintenance compared to lizards. Um, but, you know, I do probably have more lizards than most people think. So, you know, it's all about trying to make everything as easy as possible for the keeper, but also maintaining a quality of life for the kept. Um, so, you know, it's always about trial and error. I mean, you just got to, yeah, be really on the ball. And, and I mean, more time these days, I spend so much time working with the animals more than anything else. So, you know, um, the hours, throwing millions of hours, you know, if you put a, if you put a time on your, or a price on your hours, I, I think I'd be way too expensive because, you know, like most of us, you're just doing it because you just love it and you just, want the animals to thrive and and for me the reward is seeing little faces you know those little faces pop out and that's the coolest part i mean with the monitors you know um live food's one thing but also you know trying to supplement with protein based depending on what it is i mean things like brevicorda you know you got to cut pinkies up so you make your own mints basically and then you know you can sit there and feed them legs and tails and bits and pieces or chop the head into three pieces and they'll take that um, right through to, you know, some of the bigger stuff. You just try and r- rotate whole food items. So try and diversify, not always just giving them rats or quails, but, you know, rats, chickens, quails, and then throwing some mice in there, but also hiding it, sometimes hiding the food, encouraging them to think a little bit more and find and search rather than just give them a plate and say, here, get this into you. Um, even the skinks, you know, blue tongues and shinglebacks, they're much the same. Um, even the agurnias, uh, you know, they like to search and hunt out food and they've got higher senses of smell, so they'll go and look and sense and move around and change anything in their cage or hide something in the corner. They'll find it straight away, you know, the agurnias, they're pretty good. Um, geckos, same again, same as you guys, you know, try and keep them more naturalistic. I mean, that could be just changing branches. So I live in a rainforest, so I can go throughout and cut some, some branches, cut them up in the chunks, push all new bits and pieces in, pull out the old ones. Yeah, that's quick and easy, and then you can offer them different food items. You know, you can 
gut load. So that's another technique that I sort of died in the bum basically in the last 10 years, 15 years is gut loading your, your insects prior to feeding. People just buy the food from the pet store and go, that must be it. Just keep them alive for three or four days and feed them. Whereas yep. it's nutritional based. Mm. You know, if you're not feeding them mm. and they're only eating carrot, what, do you, what benefit do you think they're really giving to your lizards? You know, exactly. that moldy calcium powder, you really, and vitamin powder, you're really re- relying on that so heavy rather than trying to make that food item better quality. So, yeah, you got to really yeah. think about pro, you got to think about, you know, good food. And, and, and I guess, you know, I've probably been breeding rodents longer than I've been breeding reptiles. And that's, uh, that's fortunate for me because as my collection grew, my rodents grew and it was sort of a hand in hand sort of relationship there. And, you know, I could feed and maintain the amount of animals I had based on how many rodents I breed. And I think that's a, that's a very good point for breeding reptiles is, and, and I've said it before, what happens if you're too successful? What happens if everything you do does work out Comes and off. You, you do breed a decent size of amount of animals? I mean, that could be from one person having a good clutch of carpet python eggs right through to someone breeding, I don't know, a thousand snakes maybe. What are you going to do when you're too successful? How are you going to adequately house, feed, and maintain them until you let those numbers dwindle? And I mean, not dwindle in a nasty way, dwindle in a nice way where they find new homes. So, yeah, I mean, we use a lot of, um, I say we, and it's basically me and my wife. Um, do the core of the work here. She shares the passion, probably not as much as me, but she obviously shares a bit of the workload more with the lizards than with the snakes. And um, up until probably two years ago, my brother is now starting to get a bit more involved. Um, I've turned him from a fish guy and a bird guy into a reptile guy, so he's come around full circle, which is good. I mean, he still likes his fish and his birds, which is really good for – you know, the semi-aquatic um, monitors and stuff like that, which is really good. I can let him take control of all the water conditioning stuff. Um, but, yeah, you're just going to make things work. And, I mean, we use a lot of um, – they, they call them deli cups in the U.S., but basically they're like Chinese containers, whether they be um, the little sauce containers right through to the, you know, the rice containers, all the spherical stuff. And basically we just have um, yep. pl- plastic – they're like a plastic hide. And we have the deli cups that drop in the top. Um, the animals can then get underneath and use it as a hide as well, as well as their hide box in their cage. And, you know, if the snakes poop in the water bowl, which everyone thinks it's a travesty, it's the best thing, best day ever, because you just pull that out, you know, toss it, chuck a new one in, fill it up, off you go. And that just makes the whole process of keeping everything clean really easy. You know, you just you can just pull out all the put all new ones in and it's pretty quick and easy substrate um, particle substrate makes it so much easier as well going from butcher's paper through the winter season back into substrate in summer is like a, a godsend it feels like nearly every second day you're cleaning cages versus you know you just go in there every day and just do your spot cleans um, you can top up your substrate and depending on how heavily you're feeding your animals depends on how much waste is coming out which will depend on how quickly that bedding will start to smell. You know, then you you dump the whole box and start again, you know, every three to four weeks, depending on how bad it is. 
So it's it's all about trying to make it easier and quicker for me so I can get across all the animals. Um, on yeah. a daily daily thing, I check all the animals. So I've got to see the animals every day. And that's, that's the crazy part. I could go to America for two weeks, get back at midnight, and the first thing I do is straighten the reptile room, look at all the animals because yeah. I'm just – because I spend so much time with them, you could look at them and you could start – you can understand how they're feeling or what they're doing. If someone's a little bit off or laying a little bit weird, you'll see it straight away, you know. And I think that's something that as your collection grows, you've got to remember that that whole responsibility still comes back on you as the individual. Um, you know, I've had up to six people work for me previously and, you know, I've had people specifically their job is to clean and maintain the animals and feed, that's it. And even then, on a daily basis, I would get home from work, and yeah, I've paid them to clean cages, I'd go in there straight away and check on all the animals. And if there's, you know, like snakes do, you put a new cage, a clean box, and they poop. They poop straight away. And yeah. I, I think that comes back to another thing that maybe we're keeping them too clean sometimes, and that's, yeah, you know, they're, they're trying to re-establish, because they're trapped in this little environment, trying to make themselves feel better, so therefore they leave a little bit of a scent trail. So I think the substrate really works well for that rather than butcher's paper because butcher's paper is yeah. it's great, but it can drive you insane real quickly. It doesn't so, choose but yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. It, it has a use-by date real quick. And yeah. and, and, and I, I just, like, like I say, I've just got to make sure that, you know, it's that visual cue. I've got to check every single animal visually every day and, and you know, if they're expecting females, I'll check them two to three times a day. They must absolutely hate seeing the, this face, look at them, you know, every couple of hours. <laughs> and, I mean, that's exactly what they must see, it's you know. It's the this, yeah, this little face yeah. looking there going, what's going on? Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but if you're not doing that, you're not going to notice that the female, you know, oh, she's a, looks like she's trying to lay but she's having some problems, you know. That egg looks a little bit big towards yeah, the exactly. vent there. Maybe I need to have a closer look. Maybe I need to, you know, massage her and help her move the eggs a bit, just make sure the eggs can still move. Do I need to double check and the egg's too big, it's not going to pass. So let's just see how she goes with that. And, you know, all this observation stuff, reptile keepers really rely on, and, I mean, it's not wrong, the, the internet, they help them out. Unfortunately, they use a lot of Facebook. Um and the quality of information can't be guided or, or gauged. I, I, you know, I was always taught by the pioneers that we need to rely on so many things that makes us human to notice the animals, and that includes touch. So touching your animals, you can feel. Seeing, obviously, we all see. Hearing doesn't really work, obviously, but obviously the, the gift is smell. So sometimes opening the cage and going, that smells that smells a little bit funky or you know that that feces smells a little bit weird why is that what did i feed them you know why is this why is that um yeah so there's so many different things it's not just about opening her cage throwing in some more butcher's paper throw the snake back in and top up the water and you're good for two weeks you know yeah. I just there's, there's so much to it and yeah, the more animals you have, the more responsibility it is on your, the individual to make sure you're doing the right thing for for your little friends. Just to get a little bit sidetracked here, but I'm just curious. You know how you just touched on how you use butcher's paper during the breeding season and during the winter period? 
Why do you do that and then change back to particle substrates? Okay, so so when I start my cooling process, I usually put butcher's paper in. One, it's it's basically a big, barren, white or grey surface. You put it in. You put the male in with the female. The female will start to scent trail. So basically, she'll start smearing. So she'll lift her tail. She sort of puckers around her vent. And she starts creating pheromones and laying down scent trails. So then she'll sort of, it's very artistic sometimes, you know, they leave these little strawberry colored sort of smears on the paper. And obviously the males are then stimulated by that scent. And then they'll particularly follow the females around. Obviously, you can imagine if you put them in a house, like let them go in the house, they would do exactly the same thing. The male would just obviously hone in on that scent trail. And then he would have to follow her on a, on a greater access, whereas in a smaller cage, obviously, it takes him a very short period of time to find out where the female is. And I just, I just basically, you know, if the female's popping a vent out, you don't want anything to be pulled back inside um, that could cause a problem yeah. somewhere down the track, whether it be, you know, particles or any substrate or even old feces. So this time of the year, you know, you put a female and male together, the female will get excited. She'll poop a little bit as well. So then as soon as they mate or copulate, you get in there and you change the paper. And then as soon as you change the paper, she'll probably smear again and poop again. So then you change the paper. And, I mean, some people just won't touch them during that period of time. I just get a little bit fussy. I just want to make sure that she's got the best possible reasons not to have issues further down the track. And then obviously, you know, during this period, you'd see the females ovulate and then, you know, you just throw in a, a hide box. I say a hide box, but it's a lay box. You know, you get everything ready and you put in lay boxes so she can start to find where she wants to go and where she wants to be. And depending on the size of your lay boxes too, the females will actually push them around in the on the butcher's paper to find out where she wants her heat zones. And then, um, yeah, I just leave them be and then once the eggs hatch, because I do a lot, a lot of maternal incubation these days, a lot more. Um, mm. Once, once the babies start to hatch, you know, I'll go in and take the female out. I'll empty the whole cage out, do a whole deep clean, reload it with um, particle substrate. I'll wash her down, clean her up, and then make sure that she rehydrates. So you can put her in a small tub for half an hour. And during that half an hour, you know, I'll take the eggs out. I'll clean the eggs up. I'll put them in a box and just put them in the incubator until they all emerge. But it's usually a pretty quick transition. Once yeah. the, what once sort the of substrate are you using in your lay boxes? Uh, in the lay boxes? I've, I've used sphagnum, sphagnum this year. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'll use perlite or vermiculite or sphagnum in the lay boxes. Um, some of the older days, you know, you'd, you'd set it up and the female would lay in the box and you'd take the female off and then you'd just throw a bit of glad wrap over the top, put the lid on and chuck it in the incubator the way it is, you know. It's just yep. quick and easy. So therefore, you know, the, the lay box was the lay box and that's where the eggs were until they hatched. Yeah. And then, you know, all the new fancy stuff of suspended methods came in and, yeah. So you try a bit of everything to see what works best, not just for number of outcome but... I look at the size of the neonates, you know, and the ease of yeah. how those neonates feed, especially for anteresia. They, they're pretty painful. I mean, you could have 100 carpet pythons and, you know, you might 
first time you feed them, you probably get 80% of them to eat. And then three months down the track, you might have 2% that still haven't eaten, but it's very unlikely that you would lose a carpet from not eating in that first three months. They usually all feed. Yeah. Whereas you do that with anteresia, you know, that first first time you offer them the food, you might get 10% to eat. In that three months, you're still pulling your hair out or going grey, like me, because I'm only 25. <laughs> you know, because they just won't eat. Some of them are just destined not to eat. And, you know, they're on the flip side again. That makes you think of different things, you know. These animals obviously aren't eating because are we feeding them the wrong type of food first up? Yeah. Are we not stimulating the right sort of sensory organs? Are we not taking into consideration the types of animals, where they come from, what they would normally eat? And then the third thing I would think of is, I mean, we look at mammals and birds and, you know, parents and babies, they get taught information's passed on through showing or speaking, whether their languages are. And, Reptiles don't share any of that really maternal information except for a few species. So is that pre-programmed so when the babies hatch, they already know that they like a certain type of food because their wild-caught adults used to feed that for the last 50 generations. Who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, there's so many weird things you think about, I guess. You could just fall straight down that rabbit hole and just get lost. It's a... It is a massive rabbit hole too. Like I yep. often think about that and I think I was talking to uh, Matt Somerville not too long ago about it, how, you know, it's not just what you're feeding the animal, but it's what's feeding that animal as well and so forth and so yep. on, you know, and, you know, it's just, it's the full uh, food web yeah. really, you know, there's all different sorts of minerals and vitamins and stuff that would be coming down the line from all different preys for the whole range of animals and, yeah, when you kind of think about it like that, you're like, yeah, but I'm feeding them crickets that are eating carrot and Lettuce, you know, maybe yeah. a bit of dog pellets or something like that, you know, and that's that's all yeah. we're getting sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. It would definitely be cool to have like a, a bigger selection of, you know, especially lizard keepers that feed a lot of bugs. It would be cool to be able to have things, you know, easily like grasshoppers and yeah. different types of like, you know, centipedes or whatever out there, you know, just to spice it up. but. Ants, Not a lot available. Ants, centipedes, yeah. wor worms. Worms are worms. amazing. Yeah. You, you find any of the, the boidii and the spinipes go absolutely psycho for worms. Yeah. I actually spent a couple of years um, working for a couple of professors and my job was to climb trees catching spinipes. So you start to see a whole new world of how these things live, you know, on a daily basis and – yeah, worms just make these things go apeshit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I started up a work, little tiny yeah. worm farm just outside this room just for the boids pretty yeah, much. Yeah, I got one as well for pretty much the same reason and my son likes them, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. But, yeah, I just try and make yeah. things easier for me um, but also, you know, try and because of the sheer numbers of animals I work with, that's not their decision, that's my decision. But I've also got to yeah. take into consideration that, you know, they need a little bit more of this and more of that. So, you know, there, there's, there's so many ways we can in, improve environmental enrichment, you know, like going from full, complete, you know, naturalistic enclosures like you guys right through to keeping a snake on butcher's paper in a cage and then throwing a branch or a couple of leaves in. That snake's going to go, yeah. what the hell is this? 
You know, its yeah. brain's going to start to function. Its tongue's going to start to flicker. It's going to start moving differently because it's something foreign. And I mean, this, yeah. that is just any little bit is just huge for these animals. Even throwing shed skins in from other males at breeding season. Yep. Yep. Just to yep. incite that natural response. And it saves your other male from getting torn to pieces exactly. if you decide to go out and mow the lawn or maybe, I don't know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be massive. Like one thing that I like to do for my female green tree python because she's usually pretty sluggish as most greens are, but she's particularly <laughs> sluggish. Um, you know, just get a new palm frond, pop it in yep. there. The next yep. three nights, she's just all over it, and all of a sudden, she's defecated. You know, yep. so it's just that movement, that inquisitive movement's helped her out. And yeah, it doesn't have to be big. No, it could be tiny, and that's the thing. It just stimulates them, and it brings them back to their naturalistic behaviours. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's pretty important. Yeah. Well, you also got to look at it from the aspect of you know, if we lived the exact same day in and out, we'd go mental, right? So why should the animals have to do the exact same? You can try to spice it up a little bit here and there for them and just provide them that little bit of entertainment. Yep, that's definitely. Or enrichment, not entertainment. Well, I suppose it is entertainment in one way or form or bit another. Of both. Yeah. <laughs> so just to kind of bring it back around to Antaresia, because obviously that's what you're known for, what kind of was it that really triggered you? Like I know you kind of mentioned that, it, you know, Something happened when it, when you had all those venomous snakes and it did trigger you to, to want to keep the spotted pythons and breeding those guys. But what is it about them specifically that really made them your focus? I, I guess for me it was the fact that during that period of time there wasn't much information about breeding any of the Antaresia. And I guess this is, I mean, Antaresia, they only got the name back in '86. So, I mean, there wasn't really much information about breeding them as such. And for me, you know, that sort of created an interest to trying to find out more. And, you know, um, obviously everyone knows what a blonde spotted python is or a blonde mackie. I mean, Bob Whitty is the guy that called them blondes because they were slightly different. They came from Cooktown. They had more yellow in them and they were very different blotching. And as it all turns out now is that there are – different subspecies, so they're maculosis, uh, what are they, um, peninsulatus, if you want to go off the latest taxonomy, but, you know, like I said, I don't believe in that. I believe that they're different, definitely, um, because if you look at scale counts in the morphology, there's definitely something taxonomically different about them. Genetically, um, it's, it's showing that there's something different as well. So, you know, you look back to these guys and, you know, you look at how they were doing things and what they were seeing and then you go out and you look at yourself and start looking and observing and noticing and falling in love with them. And then you see all these natural colour variants. That's what really won me was the what nature had to offer as a natural colour variation. I mean, yes, I'm no one to breed some of the cool stuff, but I believe that a lot of people get mixed up when they when they talk about morphs. They think that all morphs are hybrids and yep. all hybrids are morphs, whereas it's it's not true. And I'm, I'm that guy that really likes to keep things pure. So, you know, if it's a if it's a maculosis, it stays maculosis. I don't want to jump ship to something else just to try and get different colours and patterns in. I think every 
every species has something beautiful to offer. And I just look at those creams and rich browns and yellows and blacks that naturally in these spotted pythons and it just sort of blossomed from there. I mean, look at look at Stimson's pythons. Look at the, the oranges and the maroons and the yellows and the creams. and Oh, it's just – yeah, I, I just fell in love with the natural colours. And, and from that, you know – it just grew, I guess. And plus they've got a bit of an attitude for a little snake. They think they're bloody 80 foot long. They're really yeah. mongrels, really. I don't know. I mean, if you really wanted a snake for a kid, it's probably one of the snakes I would sort of, you know, they will calm down. <laughs> but, you know, when you buy a baby snake, it's used to defending itself no matter what it is. It will calm down, but you just yeah. got to take your time and you go through the right processes and you can have a snake similar to the ones I've got that are 20-odd years old and. You can do anything with them. They're bulletproof because they know that, you know, yeah. the, the snake's got to learn as much as we have to learn that the animal's body language does certain things. You know, we can trigger them to have different responses. So we've got to be really aware of what we do around the animals. But, yeah, I just fell in love with those little things. And I had um, a good friend, Rico Walder. He um, came and visited me and he's well-known. Well, used to be well-known. He's passed away now. He actually had a brain tumor, which yep. was pretty horrible. Um, as you know, he was he was a chondro python guy, and I, I seen his stuff and every chondro in every color, unbelievably imaginable. And he came and looked at my stuff and he goes, "Wow!" And I show shown him snakes and I was all excited and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah." And he's like, "You would have to have the biggest collection of dirt snakes I've ever seen." He goes, you are the. He said, you are the dirt snake king, and that's where that's where that's all come from. Is Rico, my my good buddy Rico, called me the dirt snake king, and it's just stuck yeah. in there because, I mean, I I just saw I just saw the love and the passion and all the colours of browns. I mean, there's so many colours of brown that that's what I fell in love with. And obviously, as we go on, you know, you get all the weird and wonderful coloured stuff. Some of it's polygenic or line bred, right through to recessive sort of stuff and you can produce all sorts of cool colors and patterns now but um you know 20 years ago it was unheard of it was just you know you either had a stock standard brisbane spotted or a blonde mackie you know and the blonde mackies were what everyone wanted and everyone wanted the best example yeah you know and that's yeah a lot of it gets lost because everyone's in the chase i guess like the carpet guys to breed whatever they can to produce the next cool stuff i just I just like producing yeah. pure line, cool stuff. Yeah, I think that's the thing with some of the lines that you've got going, though, that you've just like refined over the years. So, because I'm not, I was never really a big fan of the dirt snake, so to speak, but <laughs> some of the stuff that you've refined over the years, it's changed my mind on them. So, I, I just There's think some nice lines of stimmies and stuff that you've done there. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just think it's just, it's just sticking to you. I, I work with my projects and I work with them well. Exactly. I don't want to take someone else's project, you know, and work it. I mean, I have, whenever I've bought colored stuff in, it's always been from the foundation. So, like um, when I got Marvel Children's, I bought stuff from Simon Stone straight from the original source because there's two things there. Number one is, I'm going straight to the source, so I'm going to get the best quality animals to start with. So therefore, my, my, my foundation animals can only be the best to produce better. 
you know, you can't buy rubbish and expect to produce the best. It just sort of doesn't happen that way. You might get one or two standouts, but not consistently yeah. good quality stuff. And the second thing is, you know, you're supporting someone that's already put in the work. So that's how I always looked at it, mm, you know. Exactly. Um, so whenever it came to different things popping up, you know, I used to go straight to the guy that bred it first. If I don't get them the first time around or the second or the third or the fourth, I'm happy to wait, but I want to get it from the source, you know. And then they come into yeah. my collection and then I work them and then I work out how they're working like the modes of inheritance because not a lot of people knew the modes of inheritance of anything. They just knew that if you did this and that, then you get some of these and the rest of it was garbage, you know. So to get consistent outcomes, you need to sort of work out how it works for yourself. And if you're consistently – and, you know, I, I always say it's like, it's like, you know, whenever you're hitting the odds, you know, we always talk about hitting odds when we talk about genetics or morphs. And, I mean, genetics was one of those pro subjects that we all switched our heads off at school because no one really wanted boring. to do any of that. Yeah, it, was, it was just boring <laughs> stuff. But now, you know, every man and his dog is a genetic whiz kid yep. um, based on what YouTube or – Facebook has told them. So, you know, you really got to sit down sometimes and work out how things are working. So if that means you've got to get something, put it into something completely unrelated, that first clutch will tell you, give you an indication of where you're going. And then when, you know, you breed those back together, whether they be back to each other or back to the original parent, then you get a better indication the second, second round. And, I mean, people get fooled or dis discouraged or confused I guess that if you breed the same parents together this year and the same parents together next year you're not creating two generations you only created one because yeah. those babies separated by a year are still related directly and I think yeah. a lot of people get confused by that and yeah I just it's sort of weird how some people think and in their minds they've got it this way and I mean, I'm probably the same. I've got it this way in my head. But I, I, I always reach out to friends all over the world that have much bigger collections, much more you know, knowledge than I would ever have, and I give them the information. This is what I've done. This is the outcome. What, we, what are your suggestions? You know, then next year, this is what I've done. This is what we've come to, the conclusion. I know what I'm thinking but I put it out there and see what they say. And then, you know, hopefully you're both hitting the same answers. And that's sort of breaking that down and working out how it works. And as soon as you know how things work, then you can consistently produce cool stuff, you know? Yeah. The coolest paint jobs. <laughs> yeah, they've definitely got some cool paint jobs going through them, that's for sure now. Yeah, oh, yeah, I've been watching uh, quite keenly on, I think it's um, Darren Boswell's stuff. I think he's down in SA, isn't he? He's got some really yep. nice marbles that have almost like a white pinstripe down the back there. Yep. There's something pretty funky that's popped up in the last couple of couple of seasons or so. But, yeah, yes. it, yes. it, it's crazy how quick it's progressing for Antaresia. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it's good to see. I mean, that people are finally falling in love with these little feisty yeah. little bloody snakes, you know, like. It's just because they now got cool colours. Yeah. Everyone wants to jump jump on board, and it's like, I love these things back when they were just ugly, dirty brown things. But you know, I just, I, I just, just still think the natural, 
natural colors are cool you know colored stuff's yeah, cool 100 percent. because yeah. it's all pure blood stuff for me and yeah just seeing the variance is just amazing and then, i guess it's Back in the earlier days, you know, we always looked, you, you produced a clutch of babies and you had 10 babies and one of them would stand out. You'd always have that one that stood out and mm. you're like, oh, that one's cool. That's slightly different. I'm going to hold that one. I might sell the others. Yeah. And then the next year you produce another clutch and you go like, oh, those two really stand out. They don't, don't look nothing like anything else. So then you'd hold onto them. So what you're doing is you're picking out all the weird, aberrant looking weirdos and you're holding them back because they just look weird, you know. And then – you start putting them together to see what they produce. And then it wasn't until I'm trying to think now, I think it was like 2004 or three. I went, you know what? I've got to keep track of this because I'm getting more of these cool looking stuff starting to pop up. So I went through and numbered everything, you know, just gave them a random number. And then, you know, if you produce a clutch of babies, you, your babies would be, I just, pick the year now so it's year 21 and you start 21 dash zero one you know and they just all have a number but then that number you can correlate back to the sire and dame and you can start working out and when you do that you can actually go back not just to the parents grandparents great-grandparents but you can start getting this whole picture of where the influence is coming from that you're seeing now and zoning back and going if that's what I think it is, and I've put that into this as well, then I should see it over here. And if you start seeing it over in two different spots, you're like, I think that's something cool, you know? Yeah. It's just keeping a track you, of all your records. Yeah. Are you writing them down or have you got them on your computer or something? Yes. <laughs> I have yeah. stacks. I'm, I'm quite analytical. And, I mean, what I do is I go through and I write everything down every year, Every cage gets a breed card. I can tell you how many eggs each particular female has produced since they've sexually mature. I can tell you how many slugs, how many viable eggs. I can tell you all that information. I can tell you their their weights, how much weight they put into egg production. And, I mean, all that data is just sitting there. And, I mean, when I had um, Justin Gelander and Nick Mutton come to my house and they stayed at my house for a couple of days and I showed them my dirt collection because I had the, the magnificent dirt <laughs> collection. And um, and they said, this was just after they released the first carpet python book. They said, we're thinking about doing a, an Antaresia book. And I went, well, I keep a few. And they're like, oh, really? Because I knew, I knew Justin a couple of years prior to that, but I didn't really know Nick. And they're like, oh, really? And I went, yeah, yeah, come and stay at my place. So they come and stay at my place before we went up to Darwin for a week. And um, – and I took them in, and, of course, they were here at the right time of the year. I had snakes laying eggs. I said, oh, yeah, check this out, eggs, 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 eggs. And they're like, holy shit, we've never seen this many anteresia. No one in the world keeps this many. And I went, because, you know, that's all we have here is brown, dirty snakes or big, dirty brown snakes, you know, carpets. You guys have all everything in the world. <laughs> and they're like, wow, look at the variation, look at the colors, look at the patterns. And they're like, oh, you know, maybe we should get some information for all the data for all the eggs and stuff. And I went, oh, and I pulled out a book and I said like this, egg sizes, egg diameters, weights of eggs, neonate sizes, hatches, blah, 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 sexes. And they're like, holy shit, how much of this stuff have you got? And I went, well, I've been keeping this for about 10 years now. And they're like, holy crap, you know, and then 
on the flip side, it was the gold mine. Oh yeah, they would have been stoked. All the data was sitting here, waiting for someone to open it, and they're like, "Would you be interested?" And I'm like, "Hell yeah! This is this is my thing. You know, this is what I do. This is my love. My interest is Antaresia, and that's how I got involved with the book. So yeah, I came on board yeah. not just as a, a mate that had one or two snakes. You know, I already had a a good collection of um, locality, as well as some of the newer morph sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, all that sort of exploded. So 2013, I think we released that book. So all that information was yep. sort of crammed into then. And then since then, everything's changed, you know. It's it's huge. It, the, the, the weird stuff just keeps coming out of the out of the out of the space you know people just keep putting pictures up all this cool stuff and you're like whoa that is next level yeah and it's good to see i love are they working on the second one we're not at the moment at the moment they're working on the second carpet python book but that's been dragging out for two years now it just every time they rewrite or send things back to each other to re-edit it it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger it's going to be like a three thousand page encyclopedia soon so yeah. it's gonna it's gonna be pretty impressive. Looking forward to that. It'll be very impressive. Yeah. Knowing yeah. Justin and, and Nick how how in depth and in detail they are, it's it's gonna be massive. Yeah, no doubt they'll do a second um Antaresia book though, I think, especially with all the, the new stuff that's come out recently. So Yeah, with all the new stuff, the double sort of and all the hybrid sort of weird sort of stuff that's coming out, it's and all the natural variant stuff that keeps popping up, it's it's pretty crazy. It has to be um, yeah. chucked in there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and all the polygenic stuff that's coming up too, you know, yeah. the, the sort of lines that you work on with some of those stimmies are just out of this world, some of the colours and patterns on those guys. So yeah, freaks phenomenal. of nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I You're think I must have bought this book, book off you. Yeah. I don't know if that's your squiggle, Peter. Where are we here? It's like a chicken scroll. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of handy having this bookshelf right here. I love this book. I've, I've read this back to cover to cover a few times now. But Thank yeah, you. No, it's a, a fantastic book. Yeah, I got book. it off here at the Central Coast Expo a couple of years ago. Nice. Yeah. So. Back in the day when I actually bred a few stimmies. Nice. Those things were pains in the bum to get feeding. To breed. Not, no, yeah, get feeding. They, yeah. they were a pain. I've got. A pair of children's pythons. They're the only ones that I, I kind of keep now. I do have a stimmy kicking around. Um, but the children's pythons, their offspring are just relentless. Like whenever they come out, they're just they're hungry all the time. So I'm pretty lucky yep. with this pair. They just seem to throw some offspring that just want to eat. So, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. They're the ones you hang on to. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they must have hatched out, what, less than a month ago, Jason? And I think, yeah, I think so. a few of them have already had four feeds. Oh, beauty. You know, so they're, you know, every few days I just shove a pinky in them. That's it. <laughs> they're good. Get some size onto them and get rid yeah. of them. <laughs> they can be yeah. painful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty lucky. I've got two that are a little bit hit and miss, but even they've had uh, one or two feeds already now. So, yeah, that's the scariest part good. is getting that first feed into them. If you haven't got a feed in yeah. them within, well, at least four weeks, that's, it's almost a, you know, it ain't going to happen unless you intervene. I try and get yeah, food in them as quickly as possible. 
and that's what my stimmies used to do. I remember used, I used to take <laughs> I used to take three beers down to the garage with me, and I'd sit there at the little workbench underneath the light. I'd sit there just assist feed, assist feed, assist feed, and I'm like, man, why am I doing that with these things? Yep. I ended up getting rid of them because I was just like, not nah, I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but yeah, my 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 own trick that I've I've kind of learnt with these guys is the first couple of weeks I leave them in the incubator to cook yep. after they hatch out and just keep them nice and hot and that seems to get them nice and ravenous and then once I get that first meal into them then they seem to be okay to go into another enclosure or something like that and after that they're pretty good. Yeah, with my babies they have um they have a hot spot of thirty six degrees and everyone freaks out. Yeah. So you've got a hot spot of thirty six degrees the front of the, the tub sits at about twenty eight. But at those temperatures, I tell you what, they get hungry pretty quick. Yeah. I think everyone forgets that how hot the sun is and how hot rocks and road surfaces mm. are as well. So, and they they bask on those areas. So they might only bask for a short amount of time, but they're getting that heat and then going off to do their thing. Yeah. Well, see, that's that's another thing about going out in the field and taking some gear with you, some temp guns, and exactly. actually seeing. I mean, you see, you see diamond pythons cross the road, and you're like, "Oh, that's cool." And you put your hand on the road, and you're like, "Whoa, that's a bit warm." And you temp gun it, mm. and it'll be like 29 degrees, and you're like, "How is this possible?" Air temperature is yeah, only 18 degrees. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> Big but it can joint. be a 16 degree day, and you can temp gun a, a a carpet outside, and it'll be up around 28 degrees, 30 yep. degrees, just body temp. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a... suck it up. Yeah. That was one thing I did remember you saying. I can't remember where I heard it, but I, I might have been on one of your your podcasts years ago about how you used to run yours really hot. And ever since that, that's always been in the back of my head. And I'm like, okay, whenever I'm doing these things, I'm just cooking them, yeah. cooking them. And as long as I can get like a low sort of about that 28 mark, then I'm happy. I can, oh, I can yeah, cope it, with that. It works. And I mean, I, I breed a few of them, so. <laughs> yeah. Glutton, glutton well, for punishment it. there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you're doing something right, so I may as well follow in those footsteps. Yeah, it works. Try to do that. So while we're kind of talking about little babies and, and racks and stuff, something I did want to actually touch on is I, I remember seeing ages ago you used to keep Brevacorda in racks. Mm. That was something rack. that I – Yeah. I thought that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I'm like, what? Lizards in racks? This just doesn't even seem this normal. Is, but This is weird. <laughs> yeah. Can you just give our, our listeners a little bit of a rundown about how you put those together and, and operated those? Yeah. So basically, um, I, I had these, I was keeping Brevicorda obviously in two foot fish tanks. And, you know, you have about four inches of, of sand in there or 100 mil because these guys, uh, I mean, you, you take the rule book for monitors and tear it up and throw it out the window. Th- these these guys will climb. Um, but you got to remember, they've got short little stumpy legs like a, like a dash hound, basically, you know, these little short stumpy <laughs> legs. And they're really built for burrowing, and that's where they like to go. And it's the weirdest thing to come in and not find your lizard and then dig it up and find it at the bottom of your tank and you just freak out and it just opens its eyes and sort of wriggles and runs away and you're like, what the hell just happened? I thought you were dead. But they spend a lot of time underground in the sand not always building a burrow. They just sort of dig under the sand and just fall asleep wherever they want. You'll come in and they'll be upside down on their backs, sort of basking with their bellies up, just doing all the weirdest sort of things. And they're like a puppy dog, you know. It's just their weird behavior. It's just, you know, you walk in, the dog could be laying upside down and rolling around and doing – these guys do exactly the sort of weird stuff like that. So I thought, you know, I started 
well, I was fortunate enough that I started to produce a few. And I thought, well, how am I going to keep these, you know, and look after them? Um, the first time I kept a couple of babies together and obviously I had one baby kill another baby and I thought that's not going to happen again on my watch. So I went through and I'm trying to work out what to do. And then I remembered being in the US, I'd seen a few of the, the big lizard breeders, how they used to keep things. And there was nothing like that over here. And I didn't want to keep them in any of the, the rack systems that were currently available because I couldn't give them the temperatures they required. So they need basking spots of like 65, 55 to 65 degrees basking spot. That's not just complete cage temperature. It's a basking spot. They needed access to UV light because they're a desert dwelling species. Yes, they do spend a lot of time underground, but they're still going to have the opportunity to get to UV light. I know a lot of people say monitors don't need UV. I don't think that's correct. Um, so, you know, I had to get into these these considerations so I had a rack I basically flipped the rack upside down I screwed a whole heap of aluminium sections in I had these big rat tubs that I was using and they're probably about uh, probably about 70 centimeters long by about 40 centimeters deep and they were 20 centimeters high which worked out really well so I could put a nice substrate of sand which they love I could put a nice big flat water bowl down one end I could have a rock or anything down the opposite end where they could get up on top, get underneath the dichroic lights, the 12 volt dichroic lights, and really sizzle, you know, really absolutely sizzle. And these guys just absolutely went ape over it. You know, they loved it. And obviously, as time progressed, I put fluorine around the top edge so I could throw roaches in there because roaches are really a better food, high protein, high everything compared to crickets, you know. So we just yep. built this little rack system and they'll just, we could just slide them in and out, worked really well, so we could slide them in and out, open them up, spray them, give them a good wet down because, you know, today it's going to rain, fill up the water bowl, throw in the food, and they'd <laughs> pop out of nowhere and go and hunt and run around and go crazy. Um, and then, you know, being a desert species, everyone thinks they don't need access to water. I think that's probably not 100% correct. So I would always offer them water every day. Yeah, it would be a shallow dish of water because they only got little legs. I didn't want them to drown. So that just meant every day I'm topping up the water, topping up the water. And if you spill a little bit, that's okay because it just moistens the sand around there. They'll burrow underneath and that sand will hold its shape so they can start to build their own little burrow system, which I just started to getting more and more pleasure out of watching them build and, and move around. So that's how that all happened. I could put all the UV lights, all the heating on the outside, I had fly screens so the bugs couldn't get out, jump out. Nothing could jump in that shouldn't jump in and you know, flew on around the edge so the roaches couldn't escape. And, um, yeah, just pretty straightforward, I thought. <laughs> it is something that was very straightforward, but it was just something that I think, yeah. and especially in Australia, that's not seen. You know, like that's... Probably not, no. And I, and I was using... Um, I guess at the time they weren't sort of a big thing, but they were the uh, Exoterra high output uh, UV lights. And um, I, I actually, you can buy them for fish tanks. They have like the separate ballast that has the double, the double thing for your tubes. And of course, I had was to make the, up. Say it. That's not the Sunray, was it? I think so. I think um, Pet Pacific had them. 
And they used to have yeah. the longer ones. They only have the short ones now for the six sixty centimeter ones where they had the the twelve hundreds. So I just had it so I could have uh, you know twelve hundred across two tubs. So you know, in, in effect, you're using less equipment, but you're getting the same impact. You so you get two animals on each level, getting everything yep. they need: the light, heat, all the rest of it. And those high output lights, oof, doesn't it make them change the way that they do things? You know, just turning the UV light on and watching them, you can see they definitely sort of start inflating their bodies a bit more, like they're basking, but there's no actual heat coming off them. But you can see that they're actually basking a little bit. It changes their whole behavior, that UV. Yeah. yeah. So, definitely. you know, I just, like it, it, it comes out, comes up every morning, goes down every night. Give them the opportunity if they don't want it. That's their choice, not mine. I just yep. think it's yeah, better I to agree. give it than not. Yeah, I was definitely one of those people that thought that I could get away without UV for a long time just by doing dietary supplements and that. And, you know, yep. bred animals, they seemed okay. They did everything they needed to do. And then something just triggered in me and I was just like, nah, like, why take that option away from them? And it's the same now. You know, my frogs have got it. My geckos have got it. Yep. Everything that I've got has UV yep. or, you know, just about everything I've got has got UV. Um, yeah, it's that yeah, exact so- same reason. And, and the amount of times you see animals getting up and like holding onto the mesh underneath the UV just to get that little bit closer to it, to really suck it in or, or, or whatever, you know, like the, it's, it just becomes obvious. Like, well, they're using that. They're not using the heat source right now. They're looking for that UV. That's what they're going to. Especially when they're gravid, you know, they're really... They really want that UV when they're gravid because yeah. you can you can yeah. imagine how much calcium is being depleted from their bones Definitely. for their egg production. And th- there it goes back to proper nutrition, you know. Everything goes back to nutrition as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, if we're not nutritionally looking after these animals, how do you expect to breed them or continually to put them under the stresses of breeding and produce good quality eggs, which produces the next generation of good quality animals? You know, if, if we're not doing that, regardless, I mean, even snakes need good levels of calcium. And, I mean, uh, Peter Krause was, was, was the biggest push towards, you know, when your females have laid eggs for that season in that first feed, you get the gel capsules, you fill them up with calcium, you stick it inside the mouse, you feed the snake, boom, try and replenish those calcium levels that have been depleted real quickly. So, you don't hear of that too much anymore either. No, or, or even hydration of frozen food items because the freezing mm. process depletes a lot of the water. And, I mean, if you're right. feeding a lot of frozen – I mean, I'm lucky because I get to feed a lot of fresh kill stuff. But if you feed a lot of um, frozen stuff, which I guess people do because I sell a lot of frozen stuff, then, you know, you can imagine if they're sitting it in the freezer for six to eight months and then feeding it off, a lot of that water has been depleted you could actually cause more issues feeding a frozen food item than not feeding them because, you know, they're trying to theoretically shit a brick, basically. You know, they could yeah, rip, exactly. all their, rip all their intestines apart trying to pass this. And it's not about Often. making sure water's in the bowl because it's making sure there's enough moisture in the food items. And, I mean, I, I think a lot of the chondro guys still say about injecting food items before you feed them, like water. But it's just old school technology that we used to do. We used to anything that was frozen, you just inject it with water, feed it off, boom. Yeah, just helps replenish that naturally lost water content during freezing. That might have been half the reason why a lot of the older 
green tree pythons that have regular prolapses too. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't have been. It might not have been a direct correlation to how people were keeping them. You know, it could have been like yeah, you say. Yeah, exactly. Comes back to nutrition and food. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one thing I still do is I still inject. I'm lucky that my well, not lucky, but my mother-in-law's a diabetic, so every now and then she just gives me a bag of fresh needles, and I'm like, yep, sweet, that'll that'll do the the conjos for a while, and I can in, yep. inject their mice. I don't I don't worry so much about the other species, but you know. Mm. Depending on how long that mouse or that rat's been in the freezer, it's not a bad idea to chuck, you know, a few mils or to ten mils in there. Yeah, doesn't hurt. Or yeah, even feed frosting them in water. Yeah, yes. well, that's it. Even just feeding them wet, just so then they've got a yep. little bit of moisture stuck to the fur. Yeah, it's just particle food. I mean, particle bedding. You know, you can imagine wet yeah. soaked food oh, yeah. putting it in. Yeah, you could yeah. end up with bigger issues. I mean, with some of these different substrates, that's the reason why I. It's fresh kill. Ingesting it's always dry. It. Always hold it up. Yep. They always yep. come up to grab the food. So. Or my hands, whichever they want, you know. <laughs> some, some, sometimes depending on the animal, like for example, if I was to feed like my my olive a you know a, a large quail or something like that, and it's sop, sopping wet, sometimes I'll just get like a spare plastic lid off a storage container or something yeah. and shove it underneath him while he's eating, just to kind of avoid that particle yeah. substrate going into into him. Do you Don't can use those sorts of defense mechanisms? That's it. You don't want a mouthful of gunk that shouldn't be there. I mean. They say, oh, it's natural. They do it in the wild, but I'm sure it's not their choice. Yeah, that's no. right. If you can minimize it, it's be better off. So That's it. Avoid, avoid an issue before there's an issue. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't hurt that bad to, you know, it, it's more painful to go through a, a olive python's mouth with a, you know, something to scrape out all the, all the crap in there rather yeah. than just avoiding the problem in the beginning. That's it. Yeah. So um, with your Odatria, have you kind of swapped all over to Exoterras now? Uh, no, I've still got a bit of everything. So I've still got some homemade tanks. Yep. Um, just wooden, basically plywood boxes, but, you know, branches and basking sites and all the rest of it. So there's a bit of variety all over the place. You recently kind of put together a bit of a room for your was it your primordius and your brevies? You kind of yes. swapped a lot of those guys out to the exoterras, though, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I just used the the shorter ones, which means I could get the UV lights, the high output lights, and give yep. them a greater source of high output. And and there again, you just watch them. You know, they'll come out, they'll bask at all sorts of weird times. I have the high outputs um, not on all the time because they don't spend all their time basking. So I sort of limit yep. how much UV exposure they get but you definitely can tell that when the uv comes on they come out they make you know yep. they definitely get out amongst it so yeah and i just use this that gives you a little bit more squats. life out of your bulbs too yeah it just gives you a bit more life because i mean you can imagine if a bearded dragon is out on a fence post yeah he's probably exposed but he's going to get down on the ground run over chase some food get down in the shade he's not stuck in a box where he's getting that high output consistently over and yeah. over and over and over and over again. I mean, and the clouds come over and yeah, that's right. I mean, bearded dragons are built. I mean, most of gamins are built differently anyway. You cut them up if you're unfortunate enough. You cut them up and they've got a black bag which encapsulates all their organs, so it's protecting their organs from the UV light, which is cancerous. The rest of their body can benefit from it, but none of their organs are all protected. So in this little black bag, you know, so. There again, you know, starting to understand the animals and 
building environments to suit those animals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that was my theory anyway, as crazy as it seems. Nah, definitely not crazy. I think a lot of people are adopting that method too, I think. So yeah. UV and a lot of stuff. Um, but I've done the same with my boys. I don't blare them with UV 20, you know, eight hours a day. I just have it mm. timed on different times and everything else. So. Yeah, and if they, if they learn the cycle of when it's on, then they'll come and use yeah. it when it is on because oh, exactly. they, they get to know when it's there. Yeah. They'll, make them, yeah. they'll make themselves available for it. There's no doubt about yep. that. Yep. So something that I really wanted to touch on and one of my favorite enclosures of yours is your rough-scale rough scale python enclosure. That's um, a pretty impressive piece of work there. Can you kind of just give our listeners a little bit of an overview of how you end up putting that together because it's a – you got a few snakes in there, don't you? There's about half a dozen snakes in there? Uh, yeah, six. Six roughies. Yeah. Yep. So basically, um, the enclosure is two metres high, 2.4 wide, but it's only 600 deep. So I was sort of cramped for space. And then what I did is I had a, um, a shelf unit to one side and I sacrificed the top of that and made a hide box. So the hide box is about, it's about 600 by 600 by... 300 high sort of thing. So it's a decent size hide box. And um, I, I was lucky, fortunate enough to find this. Um, they're almost like prehistoric like myself now is the uh, universal backdrop. So a whole sheet of backdrop, which was three metres wide. So I was able to put it across the back and it sort of wrapped around the two sides. And then um, I got some old uh, trees. So basically a couple of trees have been cut down the centre. So when you run them through the, uh, the mill to make fence posts out of them. You get these sections that come off that have got all the texture of the tree, but then they've got a flat section. So it made it perfectly easy to, to sort of screw them to the sides of the cages. And I wanted it to look like, so you've got the big rock background and then these trees inside the cage growing up. And that's, that, that fulfilled the, the prophecy right there. And I was lucky in that one of them actually had a big notch out of it and it lined up with where we put the hide box. So that was the entry. So it goes through the hollow, goes through the back of the tree into the hide box itself. So that cool. is all tucked wow. away. So you, you can't even see it. Just every now and then you see a little snake's head sticking out or you'll see part of their, you know, part of their sort of little coil hanging off the side there. And you know they're just sitting in that little transition area. And then what we did is um, I wanted to minimalize or change the way that we use heating so heat from above from lights so i put lights in there but the lights are the, the grid connect ones that you can change color and just make it a little bit more ambient and make it look cool you know and you can do it all off your phone and yeah you know i, I know luke loves the grid connect stuff and i'm a, I'm a big <laughs> fan myself i mean i use it in quite a lot of the stuff but stuff i've got and so i, I wanted to to mimic a bit more of nature and I wanted it to be a bit more three-dimensional rather than this background that's just sort of all lumpy. So I've, I found some universal rocks uh, and and they were like a rock that you put on the ground. So basically what I did is I went picked it up and I went, you know what, I'm going to put this on the background. I'm going to mark where it sits on the background and recess it in there. But even better than that, I'm going to take it out because it was hollow flip it upside down and I put a heat cord inside each one. Wow. So I just sicker flexed it on the inside, 
so it's upside down so that way you got the heat when you put it in the heat's sitting on the top of the the rock not on the bottom it sits on the top and then we um cut a timber ledge because my brother's a carpenter so i let him do all the all the hard work because i'm a nice guy like that so we got we got power points in the back of these rocks the rocks can come on and off and as you take the rock off you can unplug it out of the power point or plug it back in the power point and put it back on the wall that power point's connected to a thermostat it's got the thermocouple coming inside so we can maintain the temperatures of these two rock ledges so you've got these two rock ledges that have got their own heat cord operated by one thermostat we can control that and what i noticed is that i mean ruffies like to climb they love to climb so we put these big branches in there and i was lucky i just went out in the back there and just hacked down this gigantic vine and dragged it in chucked it in the cage and while it was still green, it was easy to move around and we fixed it in a couple of key points so it could dry in the condition and hold its shape. And then um, the animals loved it. They loved it so much. In climbing, they went and started hiding in the hide box all the time, which was fine, but the hide box isn't heated. There's no heating in there at all. So then winter came and they kept staying in there and I thought, this isn't good, so I kicked them out. I blocked that off and they had to spend more time in the actual cage. And, yeah, they did start hiding in different places. There were a couple of ledges where they'd sort of get in and hide amongst those ledges. But what I noticed is down on the bottom of the cage, I had a nice sort of probably 150 mil thick of leaf litter that I put in there. They started getting down amongst the leaf litter, which is something I've seen before with diamond pythons. They sort of get down amongst the leaf litter in the really cold temperatures. And I thought, this is weird because I haven't changed the temperature of the cage. The basking spots are sitting at about 30 degrees. So the only heat they've got now is, you know, at least five and a half feet off the ground. And these guys are going down to the ground, so I was getting worried about RI and all the rest of it. So then we built a, uh, a box that we could put on the ground, a hide box. And I used the, um, the ZoomEd uh, heat pads, but the heat pads are a plastic thick heat pad that they use I've seen it used multiple times in the US. They use them for mo large monitors, large tortoises. They're actually a tortoise heat pad because they can just take the punishment. And they're weather resistant. They're not waterproof, but they're weather resistant, so they can take the punishment. So instead of just putting it in a hide box and just chucking it in, I thought there's a lot of heat that comes off the top, but also it also radiates from the bottom. So what we did is we put it so it was off the ground and we just slid it in on, a, on an angle well, it just slides in, so there's equal room above and below the heat pad. So the animals can either get above or below that heat source. So now they can thermoregulate if they want to get really hot or if they want to get cool. And what I found is they'll actually spend a lot more time underneath with that heat source radiating down than they will on top with the heat source radiating up. So it just changed my whole way of thinking of how these animals really need a heat source now. I always thought being a nocturnal species, climbing on rocks, they always needed heat from the bottom up, and that's how I built my ledges. But now watching them and watch what they do, they seem to prefer the heat coming from above down. So my next thing is I'm going to have to put a heat source in there, which I didn't want to do, radiating down to see if that changes their whole behaviour again and see how they move around. And that's I would never have guessed that or understood that because for years and years and years I kept them in cages like everyone else you know like a four foot cage by two foot by two foot and i've bred them multiple times 
but putting them in this environment, obviously I've seen no mating, no aggression, no nothing. They just sort of dropped to the ground and just didn't move. They will come out when they're hungry and, you know, they'll be like little friggin' rockets when they're hungry. They just come out, they just start a wave of activity. And that's the thing is when it comes to food, you know, I've got to open the cage and, of course, they come straight for the door and you've got to feed that one and try and take one out, put him in a box, feed the next one, take him out, put him in a box. So I separate them and feed them. I try not to leave more than one in the cage, like the whole environment by themselves, feeding because it'll just cause an absolute nightmare. I mean, if you're lucky enough to get bitten by a big uh, rough-scale python, it changes your life for really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> they got really long teeth <laughs> yep i've seen them but i haven't been bitten by a large one just uh, small ones <laughs> yeah, when I, hatch, I got nailed by one when the hatchlings you get nailed you, you realize that they're big oh yeah 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 <laughs> yep i was going to say though those ones that i got off you i got nailed not long after having them at home by one of those guys <laughs> and i think they were yearlings when i had them and i'm like yeah okay note to self never yeah. get bit by this thing again <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean so, some of my big adults i can pick them up you know they're, they're very docile you pick them up and you sort of just i can grab the just the snout with my finger and i can pull it up and that's where you just see all these the dentation just pop out and you're like yeah i, I felt that it's not pretty yeah yeah it's not pretty yeah, that threat display is amazing it is it is fantastic it just the whole head shape changes and you just know you're in yep. for a bit of you're in for a bit of grief yep <laughs> yeah i've only seen one of mine do it a couple of times and that was very early on when i kind of first had them at home and and had them in a, a snake rack and yeah that's uh yeah they, they show you that dental work and you don't want to oh, touch yeah. them yep. <laughs> it, it yep, works definitely yeah so um, something else that I just wanted to touch on here was actually your walk-in incubator because most people don't have walk-in incubators because <laughs> yep. most people don't have that many eggs. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that thing definitely puts my tiny little Kamani incubator to shame. So <laughs> how did you actually go about putting that together? I, I don't think I've watched any, any videos recently just to kind of freshen myself up on it, but how are you actually heating that? That's a trade secret. <laughs> it, it's, it's, actually, it's actually the most easiest thing in the world. Everyone overcomplicates building incubators. I've, um, yeah. like I said, traveling the world and seeing other people's collections, it sort of makes you realize really quickly that sometimes we, we overthink everything. You know, yeah. it's, um, I mean, uh, Brian Barcheck, you know, he's got a, he basically in his basement, he's got this little room in his basement. He, and this is this is where it really blows you away. So his his shop used to be 15, 20 minutes away from where he lived. So whatever ball pythons would he produce at home, he'd pack them up, put them in a box, drive them home, put them in the incubator, cook them. When they hatch, pack them up, take them back to the shop, put them in the shop. So the whole theory that you can't move eggs is crazy because I've seen it multiple times. I've been nursing eggs during the drive home, you know. And... Um, his, his, the way he had it is very similar to the way I used it. He just basically had a, a concrete room. He had styrofoam on the walls and he just basically had a, an oil heater, just an oil heater in the room and then that's it, nothing else. My, my way that I've done it is um, I've used fridge panels because I've been working with fridge panels for acoustic as well as thermal properties for many, many years. So access to the materials was so easy. So that's the reason why all my reptile rooms 
all my rodent rooms are all built out of fridge panel. Just so much easier product to work with for cleanliness as well as for thermal and acoustic properties. Um, so I had this excess stuff over and I thought, you know what, I'm I used to have a little incubator there and I used to be able to get oh, probably 12 clutches in there. And then I had to buy another incubator, which I could keep another 24 clutches in there of just ants, you know, and I'm just like, this, this isn't working, you know, like I need to do something bigger. So then I just built this room and the room's probably about two and a half meters by, I can stand in there. So my head doesn't touch the ceiling. So it's about two meters high and it's, uh, it's about 1200 or 1500 deep. So it's a decent sized room. It's got racking down the, the wall and down one side. And what we did in there, and I think I did a video on this actually, um, about, because I, I cut a window in, so I don't have to always open the door to go in and out, in and out, and let temperatures keep fluctuating and make the heating source and everything work its butt off. And, and the key, I guess, is that if you can maintain a large area at an ambient air temperature, even like reptile rooms, it makes all your other heating devices work less harder and the, the opportunity for them to fail a lot more difficult if that's if that's a thing. Depending on your heating source, if you overcomplicate it or make it work too hard, it'll fail one way or another, whether it be the thermostat or whether it will just stop working or the worst part is where it just cooks everything. So we built this room. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool, this is cool. And then I went, my heating source, I just bought a, a fan-forced oil heater, basically. Originally, I was using a Dyson, just a Dyson room heater. Had its own thermostat on it, so you could thermostat on. But I always had, a, always had that plugged into another thermostat. So if the room overheated, it would cut the power off to the, the Dyson, which means it wouldn't be able to work. The only problem with the Dyson is, is if that thermostat turn the Dyson off, then the Dyson would reset and basically start at nothing. It just turns itself off. It wouldn't come back on automatically. So that was a good thing, but it was too technologically advanced, if you know what I mean. It was digital and all the rest of it. Yeah. So its fail-safe system was to switch off. Whereas if you go back to an analog system, which is just an oil heater, same principle. You have a, a thermostat that controls the temperature, the hottest temperature it can get to in the one spot. So if you reach that critical temperature, you can maintain what you want with that thermostat, which controls the oil heater. And the oil heater takes a little bit longer to turn off, like because obviously it holds heat and radiates. So therefore, if you've got to go in and out of the room, it'll maintain the ambient air temperature a little bit longer than most other heating elements. But the other problem is, is if it gets too hot, because, you know, we get these days where it's 40-something-odd degrees and no matter what you do, the air temperature just gets to 40-odd degrees and anyone's incubator that's a, you know gets those temperatures means you're going to either have some severe weird-looking creatures come out of there or they're all just going to fail. So we built a – we had an exhaust fan, so when the temperature gets too high, the exhaust fan switches on and draws out from the top of the – incubator so it sucks out the hot air as quickly as possible but the trade-off is yeah. if hot air is going out you've got to have something coming in so what we did is down the opposite end of the cage so you get cross flow we down low we put a hole in the wall and then we put a hole down because my reptile room is on top of my rodents so then we put a, a, a 
vent pipe down so we can draw the cool air from downstairs up through the bottom of the incubator. It comes through and flushes out the hot air as the fan at the top basically switches on and sucks it out. So it's cross ventilation. You're drawing cool air in and pushing hot air out. You can't push hot air out without bringing something else in. It just doesn't work exactly. like that, especially when it's closed, you know, like if it's, if you've got a door yeah. open, that's fine. But so closed area, it sort of does that. And then on top of that, I was, um, I used a, an Inkbird um, thermometer. It has four different thermometer probes on it. So I could put it on multiple shelves and I could then keep a, a contact, a visual contact because they run on a battery, but I bypass the battery and put a lead into it so it's got full-time power on it, which means it's full-time illuminated, which basically when you look in there, you can see the illuminated screen. You don't need to turn any lights on or annoy anyone. You can just see the temperatures at those four different levels in your incubator straight away. Look at your thermostat. It's on. You know, you can double-check everything without even going in the room. And then on top of that, I've got um, one of the actual – sim tubs so the suspended um tubs i've actually got a just a dirty old thermometer and a couple of probes and water in it so that's the actual temperature of the the fluid inside the box so you got air temperature yeah. you got because obviously your heat levels you get that leveling system so you know it could be 30 degrees here 30.5 31 31 and a half 32 degrees, you know, so you've got to keep an eye on all these temperatures wherever it's levels, as well as get a better indication because you've got water in the tubs. The water holds temperature longer than air, so you've got to actually see yeah. what the water temperature is. So then I've got heaps of probes and stuff all over the place that just tell me temperatures in all different places. And I can just, you know, either look at that digital displays or flick a switch on, which turns the light on and stand outside and look through the glass window now. And then I can see all the different probes, see all the different temperatures, and I can actually see eggs with heads popping out or whatever without even going in the room and changing the whole dynamics of the room. Because every time you go in and out, you know, you're allowing air exchange, whether it be good or bad, and you, know, you can influence incubation times, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a pretty phenomenal yeah. looking room, as simple as you've made it sound. At the same time, you know, it's just something one of those one of those things that a lot of people might not be able to comprehend. And you know, most people at home, if they are breeding a few things here and there, it might only be a few clutches. But yeah, I mean, a lot of eggs, you need a lot of space and yeah. multiple incubators. That just doesn't seem feasible. Yeah, well, I've yeah. I've had that. I've been there. I've one last, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let that lesson. <laughs> One last thing I did want to quickly touch on before we do wrap up here was, and it does relate back to incubation, but you did say earlier that you've kind of turned around and you're doing a lot more maternal incubation with your reptiles these days. Yep. Yeah. Most I, just, definitely. I wanted to touch on that a little bit because I'm doing, I'm doing my first run this year and absolutely packing it every day I look at this snake because I feel like I'm doing something wrong. But, um, yeah, how are you finding your, your success with that versus uh, – you know, your incubation. Yeah, there, there again, you've got to weigh up each species. Um, but the thing is, you can't just put a snake in a box, throw a, a lay box in the corner and go, lay in that, incubate the eggs and give me babies. You know, um, yeah. this, this, is, this, this has taken a few years to be comfortable with. 
and you know I've had to put multiple different size boxes, different substrates, different positionings, and and you know different species too, like carpet pythons. You know, typically don't they're a little bit different to the anteresia. You know, like you, you put a you put a lay box in the front of the box for an anteresia. She'll go in there, not like it, move around, sit over here, do this, do that. She'll push the box, jump back in, like where it is, and she'll stay there. Carpet pythons, you put a lay box in, they just go in, out, in, out, in, out, and just lay them in the corner anyway, lay them on the hot spot. So then you've got to start thinking about where they're laying them and why they're laying them. Are they stressed or is it the temperature they're looking for? So once you start looking at that, and that, I mean, I was females would be laying eggs and I'd be temp gunning them going, yep, yep, she's sitting at about 30 and a half degrees to 31 degrees. That's the reason why she wants to be in this spot. If she was in the back spot of the box here, then she'd be sitting at 33 degrees or if she was at the front, she'd be sitting at 28. So she's moved the box from here to there because that's her desired temperature range. But then, of course, you know, you always get those weird spin balls that want to lay their eggs in the water bowl or on top of the hide or just <laughs> yep. don't, don't care where they lay them, just lay them all through the cage, you know, just don't want to touch them, just want to get them out of their body and leave me alone. So you get these weird oddballs that just do that, that sort of spin you out a little bit and freak you out. So I, I would obviously always offer as many options as possible. Let them make a decision. Try not to keep, I mean, despite what we all think, moisture is the killer to eggs. So I've had better success. I mean, this year I used a lot of um, sphagnum moss again. The problem there is if the female goes out and drinks, crawls through the water and comes in, that sphagnum holds moisture for a long period of time and that moisture is directly contacted with the eggs. So you will get mold, you will lose eggs, which is a normal thing to happen, but we always freak out because we 100% success rate. I actually find that I get probably about a 90 to 95% success with the anteresia maternally incubating. But I think the greatest success is when the little heads pop out and mum's there. And then on top of all that yeah. is when the babies emerge and you start weighing babies and looking at babies compared to artificially incubated babies they're bigger they're robust and they typically eat easier so for me for that particular species i think it's it's awesome i've actually got uh, a jungle carpet sitting on eggs and she should be due to she's probably running a little bit longer than i would expect but what she's done is she's actually push the um the lay box forward so she can actually get out in the morning and bask on the, the the heated area of the tub she's actually pushed her lay box forward so she can do that rather than have her eggs on the heat you know what i mean mm. and she'll spend a lot more time sort of sitting on the eggs and going through the thermogenesis which is the shivering you know which is which is really yeah. interesting behavior but she's, it still she, freaks me out seeing this green tree python doing that. I, I you know, yep. I kind of imagined it to just be a very small shudder, but it's oh, quite no. dramatic with her. Yep. Yeah. I mean, have you hit her with the temp gun to see what temperature she's sitting at and all the rest of it? Yeah, I've actually got a thermometer, a hygrometer sitting right next to her. 
Beauty. So it does average anywhere between about, I think it gets down to roughly about 26 and a half, right mm-hmm. up to sometimes she gets up to 31. Yep. Um, which I find quite, su- quite surprising because the heat panel that's in her enclosure is only set to 31 degrees and it's on the opposite side of the enclosure from her as well. Yep. Um, and the humidity fluctuates. I mean, it is just a reptile one hygrometer thing, so take it with a grain of salt. But it does fluctuate from between about 63 to 78% humidity depending on the time of the day. Yeah. And, and, and for me, it's that whole, you look at the shape of the way that they sit on the eggs. It's that beehive. The I call beehive. it the beehive. You know, it's that beehive. And mm. the mothers are so attentive and they sit there, you know, and they, I mean, the anteresia is different to, I think, carpets and all the others because, you know, a black-headed python could be sitting there pushing eggs out and you're just sitting there catching them one by one and just taking them straight out. You know, you could be putting them in a lay box. Same with a carpet. You can do that. They sort of go into this sort of transition. With an anteresia, you know, you you sit there and she's laying an egg and you reach in to grab it and she's straight on to you. Whoosh, you know, like, what the hell? It's like, you shouldn't be doing this, you know? Mm. Like, she's she's straight on to you. You expect her to fall into that trance, but these guys are so alert and so protective. I mean, I had a clutch this afternoon hatching and two babies were already out and another half a dozen were hanging out and I was taking pictures and she, as soon as I opened the box, she, she seen me moving around and, She's just flying at me, trying to bite me, you know, bite my face, which is fine. I'm, I've been bitten all over the face. And, um, you know, just trying to get those nice pictures of her sitting on the eggs while those babies are pipping in. It's For me, that's the gold, you know. That's the cool stuff. And mm. to watch those natural yeah. instincts where she's she knows they're leaving, but she's still protective. You know, she's still going to do her thing. Yeah, that, that's That's pretty cool. And I mean, maternal incubation. Yeah, it's, it's, as I said, be, it's something that I should be easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've never stressed over eggs so much, and I'm not even doing any of the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I it's it, it, it's an incredible thing. learning process. And I say to people, you should try it. And everyone's like, oh, you know, blah, you know. It's like, come on, man. Life can't be that bad where you can lose a couple of eggs. This is nature. This is this is what they do naturally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had. Um, That's yeah. right. I had a couple of clutches hatched today and one of them, you know, a couple of eggs went off and they're all funky and gross and, you know, the temptation's there to reach in and go, no, nah, that's it, time out, pull them out. And I mean, you know, like I said, 90% of the stuff that I breed, regardless of what genetics it is, is maternal incubation. And and I found with some of the projects, like the, the albinos actually come out bigger, stronger, more robust animals, which obviously produces better quality animals in the long term. So, you know, when yeah. you see these little babies pop out or not even pop out and you look at the genetics, sometimes you get tempted to just pull the eggs and just try your luck, you know, but just I, I've just stuck it out. And, yeah, you get some funky eggs, but that's nature, you know. Yeah. How does How does mum deal with that? She just sticks it out and does her thing. And I just sat yeah, there and thing. watched her and these little babies come out and yeah, you don't get it, you know, you don't get your ten eggs, you might get egg eight eggs out of that clutch. But then when you open the next box, every single one of those eggs is in pristine condition. You're like, How is that possible? You've been sitting on that for forty two days. Yeah. And and yeah. nothing has changed. And I mean, it's it's easy to say that, you know, maternal incubation this many days versus artificial incubation, this many days. Yeah, but, yeah, that's two different snakes, two different species or whatever. Well, 
I've actually taken eggs from, you know, that clutch, put them in the incubator. The rest of them I left with mum. Same thing there and there. So now you can do a direct correlation. Incubator sits at, you know, 31 and a half, plus or minus half a degree, maybe one degree. Mum's temperature, well, she can't get any hotter than, you know, the hottest part of the cage, which is 32 degrees. She sits on the eggs, doesn't move, and yet you can temp gunner and she'll be sitting at 32.8 and you're like, they shouldn't be, eggs shouldn't be incubated at those temperatures. Everything in your head says that that's death. Or you come back and it's 29.5 or then you temp gun it again, it'll be 31 and a half. And you're like, so the temperatures are fluctuating. But then here you are, you've got clutches that are hatching on mum up to two weeks earlier than artificial incubation. I just think, mm. you know, there again, why am I keeping these animals? Because I want to learn more. I want to know more. And, you know, I set them up in situations where I can continue that interest and that thirst for knowledge and information. And is that going to tell us that somewhere down the track that when we incubate eggs in an artificial incubator that maybe we're doing something wrong that affects them long term versus maternal incubation? I don't know. I just know that if I let mum do the work, I can enjoy the process. She can really fulfill her natural place. And, you know, the babies are going to come out bigger and stronger and be less problematic for me and give them a better opportunity to survive. And I think that's huge. That's, that's me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, you've just completely brought it full circle full back circle, to your yeah, original to question. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it is. I, I 100% agree. You know, yeah, so I, if if I wasn't continually fascinated by these things, then maybe that's the reason why I wouldn't keep them. I think that'd be the point where you'd look at yourself and probably move things on. I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has to be interesting. It has to be, yeah, stimulating for you as well as for them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, on on that note, we're going to wrap this episode up here. So thanks so much, Peter, for coming yeah, on. Yeah, thanks, um, thanks, mate. That this was has awesome. been. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely a guy that can talk underwater for, and for all the right <laughs> reasons. So, you know, it's definitely given, I think, both of us a lot to think about and, yeah. you know, a lot to ponder. And I'm going to look forward to listening to this one back because uh, I like these ones where I don't have to do a lot of talking and I just have to soak it in again the next day. It's good. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully it stimulates everyone else to actually think, you know, yeah. think more. Yeah. Think more of what we do and why we do things. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. Keeping snakes in cages or lizards in cages is cool, but, you know, we all could be learning so much more and giving so much more. Yep. Yep. Maybe I need to start some of my record keeping up. That sounds like uh, maybe I should be doing that with a few species. It, 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 can, it can take you to another world, trust me. <laughs> I've got <laughs> piles and piles and, I mean, look, here's one here. Look at this. Piles and piles of data and... <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. It drives me insane, but I've got to have it. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. All right, mate. Did you want to throw out any sort of information as to where people can follow you or, you know, maybe they can come and buy a snake off your website or some rodents or something like that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's Peter at colorfulcritters.com.au is the website. Uh, Facebook, obviously. Uh, rodent Brothers is our rodent business. And obviously, Criticam on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and the Twitters. 
And thank you very much, guys, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, mate, more than welcome. Thank you for coming on. It's really good. No, it's been a great episode. All right, guys, so with that said, we're going to say a big thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.net and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.net. As far as contacting us on our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beaches Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. Good night, guys. Good night.